what do we need to know about pitch mix? I'll ask Tanner Smith about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 16th. It's show number 34 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report Analyst at BaseballHQ.com, discussing how to analyze pitch mixes and more, the effects of losing the sticky stuff, his slumps, dumps, pumps, and jumps. It's a terrific conversation. We'll have our MarketWatch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including the post-Acuna Atlanta outfield, the odd consistency of the Mets' Tyler McGill, and more. Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including 12-month StatCast leaders, a couple of Oakland facts and flukes, and some more as well. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Cubs outfield prospect Brennan Davis. Yeah, two home runs in the Futures game. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota outfielder Brent Rooker. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about some trades I'd like to see. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The last seven sixteenths of the season is underway, and we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Tanner, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy to be here. Let's start with, uh, where are you? I am in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, that is my hometown. I'm currently in online graduate school, so I'm at home right now um, going through that. Where would you be if you weren't on online? William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Roanoke, by the way, the longtime home of Ron Chandler. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did you ever know him there? I did, actually. Um, and that that's kind of how I got involved with um, Baseball HQ. So there's a whole story there with um, my dad and us being friend, family friends with the Chandlers. How did you get started in fantasy baseball so that you could become an analyst at BaseballHQ.com? So in 2008, actually, um, I was about 11 years old and... My brothers and my dad were looking for a fourth member up to have a really shallow fantasy league because they had never played fantasy baseball before. And I didn't know anything about Major League Baseball at that point. I was a video game kid. So they had to, like, you know, convince me to play. And that first year, 2008, I almost exactly picked my team off of the stats from the video game MLB Power Pros. So... I went from there. Somehow I won that year, and then I just kept playing. So, And this was a four-team league? It was, yep. <laughs> so you must have had some pretty good teams. We did, yep. And that that league is actually, we've kept that up for fun for a while now. So Still going? Yep. Oh, okay, just still just four guys? Yep. 
Oh, it's gone up and down through the or it's gone up through the years. You know, we've had times with six, we've had times with eight in that league. But <laughs> how many leagues are you playing these days, and what formats? Um, I'm in four these days, so uh, including that one. So I'm in an AL only. I'm in an NL only, and then I'm in a um, eight team rotisserie. So um, I've played in ten. I've played in twelve um team rotisseries and i played head to head but that's just what i ended up being in this year and but you've played other formats like uh, uh best ball and those kinds of things as well i have not oh you should try them I they're, played, they're fun i i've wanted to try other fancy formats it's just you know finding the right people to play with and you know getting the introduction to it so i'm kind of i guess probably on the lighter side of experience with deeper leagues among people that you'll talk to but well if you've played 12 team nl only or 12 team AL only those are the deepest formats of all it's a real uh, different challenge than playing any format of mixed in terms of my 10 or 12 teams those have been mixed um the AL only has been like four or eight teams um at different times so all right you're right they are they are pretty shallow leagues you know what you should do right. now that you're an established fantasy baseball expert with baseball hq and you're doing your writing and doing a great job of that you should uh contact justin mason and get into the great fantasy baseball invitational and raz slam which is another league run by the guys at Razball, and that's a best ball where you draft like 43 guys at the start of the year and just hold on to them for the year pretty much yeah i would love to get involved with that and i'll probably contact him next year it's just you know i've never done anything like that so i didn't even know where to go with it but it's definitely something I've been interested in getting into and probably will try to next year. Are you mostly an auction guy or straight draft? Um, straight draft mostly. Um, actually, the auctions I've done have been fantasy football. Um, so I, I really liked it for fantasy football and want to do it for fantasy baseball, but I've done straight draft for mostly for fantasy baseball. And so you're playing in this shallow league and you're friends with the Chandlers. How do you make the transition from playing about fantasy baseball to writing about it? So what happened was I had read the um, forecaster for a while. Um, I got it every year for Christmas, you know, even got to the point of making my own projections based on like stuff with that, using a lot of the methodology. Um, but then um, after my senior year of high school, um, I was looking for work for the summer. And so my dad had the idea of contacting um, Ron Chandler, who is a family friend asking him if he had any potential work I could do for Baseball HQ over the summer. So he put me in contact with Ray Murphy, um, and Ray um, basically gave me an administrative like kind of job where I was like doing stuff with inputting data into the website, like um, dealing with surveys from First Pitch Arizona, doing a bunch of like different stuff to help the website run. So I did that that summer and kind of did work for them on and off um, until sophomore year of college. And then sophomore year of college, um, I got the idea from a friend to do some minor league baseball scouting. Um, I also have um, a man, Bo Trumbo, who was a scout for 40 plus years in major leagues um, to help me kind of learn the ropes of major league scouting. So along the way, I had the idea for that, that if I was going to be doing that, I could propose writing for my, the minor league section of Baseball HQ. So I got in contact with Ray and Brent, and they okayed me to do that. So 
that summer I wrote about prospects from high, what was then high A, um, Carolina League, and um, rookie ball. Um, and Chris Blessing was also huge for me during that time, help, along with Brent and Ray, helping me learn, you know, what I was doing along those lines. Um, so I got a lot better, more comfortable with scouting along that time. And then going into, fast forward a little bit, um, going into this season, um, I had the idea one night, because I was talking with Ray and Brent um, pretty consistently about how I could more um, get like a steady writing role here. And I had the idea for the Arsenal report one night, like 2 a.m. I just was thinking and somehow that came to me and I proposed it and they rubber stamped it. And that's how I got here. And I should have asked earlier, but what's your academic discipline? So I was an undergrad. I was a major in economics and a minor in Latin America and Caribbean studies. And now in graduate school, I am going for a master's of science in business analytics. So an MSBA. Um, it's essentially doing like um, data analysis for businesses. Sounds like it would play across to your fantasy baseball pursuits. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those things where it kind of dovetails well together. So, so you, you mentioned that you, you write the Arsenal report at BaseballHQ.com, which is basically a column where you look at pitchers and assess them because there's been some change that they've made in the mix of their pitches, fastball, curveball, slider, et cetera, and then you figure out whether the change is for the better, for the worse. Sometimes I, I notice that you talk about guys who should make pitch mix changes because they, you know, they're throwing something up there that's just getting hammered and they keep throwing it, which is beyond all uh, understanding for me. But how did you get interested in this particular angle with the pitch mixes? So this was something I've been doing by myself for a while for fantasy purposes and also general baseball curiosity. Um, you know, it was something that I was always looking at guys like saying like, okay, why is he getting hammered right now? Or why is he getting better? Um, so I read a lot of good stuff along the way um, that has really helped me be able to concretely do that um, in a way that I felt comfortable with as a good methodology. Um, but yeah, that was really it was just personal curiosity and then trying to better my own fancy teams. I think that's how a lot of good work gets done in, in fantasy baseball analysis is guys who are playing the game and they just think, hey, I'd like to look at that. And it turns out to be really interesting. And, and gosh, guys have built careers on, on that kind of thing. Yeah. And then also um, Brian Bloomfield um, with his um, speculator um, columns, he did some pitch mix stuff at some points too. Um, and I looked at that article at one point and that sounded that looked really interesting, but something I felt like I could build off of and do a little bit differently. Well, if you ever have a chance to get into a fantasy league with Ryan, don't do it. He snipes you. He'll bid you up. He's, he's just a terrible guy. <laughs> I know you do usually two pitchers per column. How do you pick the pitchers that you're interested in? So it really varies. Sometimes I'll be watching a game and I'll see something and say like, okay, that looks different. Maybe I should look into that. Um, sometimes it's a news story or sometimes it's like a tweet that, you know, says, oh, this, this guy's doing this differently. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Is he really doing, doing that differently? Or how has that affected the whole arsenal or, you know, what impact will it have on success? And sometimes I'm just like looking into guys that have had performance changes and saying, why, why is this different? Um, so sometimes it really varies by, um, column and by pitcher. 
how I end up getting to them. I first started reading about the whole idea of pitch mix and the teams were managing it or looking at it, that pitchers were looking at it through their external training, but also through their internal training with Houston. And they were talking about, uh, I think, uh, Garrett Cole had some kind of pitch mix issue and they adjusted it and said, you know, your pitch number two is way better than pitch number four. You should throw more of two and less of four, going back to what we were talking about earlier. And it seems so simple, but yet it also seems to me that this is something that's relatively recent and that 10 or 12 years ago, it was relatively unusual for a pitcher to change his pitch mix, including to change it as radically as some pitchers do these days, where they abandon a pitch entirely and, and promote another one from out of nowhere to their main pitch. It's very, it seems much more unusual these days. Am I right in that? I think you're right because the technology and the coaching has gotten a lot better. You know, now we can say, okay, this pitch has allowed a 350 batting average, maybe use it less, or maybe there's a way that we could add, you know, a little bit more horizontal or vertical break to it to make it a better pitch. And, you know, maybe like, okay, based on our analysis of some other guy, maybe there's something you could do that would make you better if you emulated this characteristic. I'm thinking about like the whole Lucas Giolito changing his arms um, swing to make it shorter. Like there have been a couple of copycats to that. And that's really partially what it's about too, is, you know, guys, a couple of guys have success making radical changes and other teams look at their pitchers struggling and say, okay, maybe if he made a change somewhat similar or just a little bit different, maybe he could have a good amount more success too. I don't know if you've studied this, but I'm curious if you have, or if you'd like to speculate, when a pitcher makes an adjustment to his pitch mix or makes an adjustment to a pitch within the pitch mix, as you discussed, maybe trying to emulate a different grip or a shorter swing or, or arm slot or something like that, how quickly does that show up? So it really depends on the pitcher. And actually, that's one of the hardest things when I'm writing about it is to say like, okay, I see like the seeds of a change here, but how quickly is he going is he going to fully embrace this change? Uh, is this something that's going to radically um, change his success? The best example I can think of that is one of the first columns I wrote was um, Tyler Glass now um, about him adding the slider. And I thought at the time, you know, I'd seen a few spring training videos of the pitch. And I thought, okay, that's nasty. And that adds a new dimension to him because Tyler Glass now is a guy who went north with his fastball up in the fastball, up in the zone. And then, went down with his curveball, tunneling that off. So it looked like his fastball and then breaking down and out of the zone. But I thought, you know, slider is something that could allow him to go outside, you know, from middle of the zone to outside. But I didn't think that was a change he was going to be able to make very quickly. Um, just because of his history of things being better for him when things are simpler. And that's kind of what the Rays did for him when he went, from Pirates of the Rays has simplified it and said, just throw your stuff in the middle of the plate. It's nasty. It'll work. Um, so that was the case where it was. I was wrong because I thought it would come a lot slower than it did. It's had very similar impact, I guess, to what I thought. But I guess to answer your question, though, you know, it really, it's really hard to say, actually. And, you know, a lot of bigger adjustments are typically made in the offseason, but sometimes um, you know, in the middle of the season, there's something small that you can do that just clicks with a pitcher. And then sometimes, you know, and pitchers for everything that we see that works, you know, I'm sure there's other adjustments that we don't see that 
they tried and didn't work. Um, so, you know, it's partially due to the pitcher's mindset, partially due to the coaching staff. So there's a lot of different factors in play. I suppose, especially if they're talking about changing something about the way the pitch is delivered, it's easier said than done. I mean, all of us have muscle memory about how we do certain things. If you've ever taken a lesson, a golf lesson or a tennis lesson, one of the first things that the challenge that the coach has is to get you to unlearn what you've been doing wrong so that you can now relearn how to do it correctly. And it's way harder than people think. And for somebody who's been pitching a baseball relatively successfully, he's in the big leagues after all, so he's one in 100,000 or whatever to reach even the lowest levels of the big leagues and all of a sudden somebody comes along and says you're throwing your curveball incorrectly and you've been you've thrown 50,000 of them or something using this basically the same motion and now somebody comes along and says hey change that it's really tough even from like I played through high school and I you know so obviously not at the high levels but you know even then I was trying to make some adjustments and some things like you know you would make an adjustment and it would screw you up for a while and sometimes you would make an adjustment and it would click. Um, and sometimes you would make an adjustment and it would feel bad for a while. And then, you know, you just keep at it. And then eventually it feels good and everything's working the way it should. But I can't imagine with those guys, you know, having so much experience and so much success. Because so much of it is a lot of times the biggest adjustments. Think about like Roy Halladay. Like, you know, he made his biggest adjustments because he didn't really have any choice. You know, he was kind of broken down. He had, you know, that terrible stretch in the major leagues. He got sent all the way down the A ball. And they said, and he knew, you know, you make some adjustments both mentally or physically or you're not probably making it back. So there's a lot of those type of, there's some of those type of scenarios where Giolito is another big example. You know, he had the highest ERA in baseball, I think in, I think it was 2018. But, you know, and then he, knows at that point I have to make a change or I might not be in the major leagues for very long. So I think a lot, sometimes that factor, you know, drives people to make adjustments really gives them the motivation because, you know, it's as hard as it is, there's equal determination from these high level athletes who are, you know, very, very good at what they do. They're just may not be having success at the highest level. So you mentioned earlier Tyler Glasnow moving from Pittsburgh to Tampa and benefiting from the better coaching and the better approach to their training and their and their pitcher management. It wasn't that long ago where Pittsburgh was considered a really good place for a pitcher because of Ray Searage, and then all of a sudden he falls out of favor, and uh, and now you have other teams that are generally regarded as being better at pitch whispering, for want of a better term, including Tampa. Are there other teams that you look at and think that they're doing a better job than some that are maybe not doing as good a job? Yeah, Tampa's the first one that comes to mind because what I see with them is they let their pitchers do what's best for them. They really say like, okay, you have you have a great fastball, let's utilize that to the greatest effect. Or, you know, this is what I think your skill set is adept for and we're not going to force you to be something you're not. Um, Houston, on the other hand, is another really good one. They tend to really target guys who can do what they want them to do, which is work north to south with a high spin fastball and then a high spin curveball down in the zone off of that. But they get a lot of guys who are able to do that. Um, and, you know, they got guys like Colin McHugh is a good example of a guy who, you know, wasn't really appreciated much in the major leagues, a lot of places he went. But then he goes to Houston and their philosophy clicks with 
what he is good at, it turns out, and then they get a really effective pitcher out of that. Um, you know, Cole Verlander, another Verlander obviously had great success before that, but they really helped revitalize his career. Um, another great place from what I've observed is Chicago with the White Sox. Um, their pitching coach um, has done really good job with um, Giolito. He's done a great job with Cease, um, Rodon. There's been some massive improvements with their guys, you know, just trying, in some cases, cleaning up mechanics, in some cases, just little tweaks. Um, so I think from the mechanical side, um, the White Sox are a really good place to go right now. It seems logical to assume that if you see a particular team getting various pitchers off various scrap heaps or, or, you know, acquiring them through because they've not been successful elsewhere, and three or four of them all of a sudden are doing really well in that team context, you have to start thinking that team must be doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. That would be something I would be looking at. But it also depends on, um, you look at certain guys and you look at what the organization has historically been good at coaching. Um, those, that's how you can get some really good insight, in my opinion. If you have a guy who has like the tools to be a very good pitcher, but hasn't had the results, but maybe has a high spin rate, doesn't have high spin efficiency, for example, or maybe has a high spin rate, but is working with his fastball down in the zone where it's getting hit, or maybe has a really good breaking ball, hasn't been throwing it enough, that kind of thing. If you see an organization that maybe has had success with a similar guy or multiple similar guys, ideally, um, then that would be something that I would be looking at is maybe this is my opportunity to buy lower than to get a value um, because he is likely, you know, it's not a hundred percent success rate type of situation, but if you're playing the odds, it would be something I would feel good about and um, speculating on. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick David with Tanner Smith, pitching analyst at baseballhq.com and the author of the regular arsenal report at the site. And, uh, Tanner, I understand from the reading that I do about this that one of the challenges in assessing arsenals and in pitch mixes and so forth is classifying the pitchers themselves. There was an article at driveline.com that talked about Jacob DeGrom's curveball and Chris Stratton's slider. And if you look at them from the batter's point of view, they're the same pitch, roughly the same speed, roughly the same horizontal and vertical movement. Everything about them is the same. But the Jacob DeGrom one is called a curveball or classified a curveball in the Chris Stratton's. Jeez. And the Chris Stratton pitch is called a slider. And on the flip side, both Clayton Kershaw and Matt Harvey threw a pitch that was classified a curveball. But when you look at them, they couldn't have been more different. Everything about them was different. The 10 mile an hour difference in velocity, all kinds of differences in horizontal and uh, vertical movement. How can pitch mix analysis allow for and manage the uncertainties around the classification of pitches themselves? So on one hand, it leads to a lot of difficulty because um, when I'm looking at a pitcher, one of the things that I do a lot is if I'm looking at a curveball, I want to compare it to other curveballs to see where it stands, especially if it's a situation where I'm saying the pitcher should throw it more or should throw it in a different way. Um, if I want you know, him to really bury it in the zone more if it, or for a fastball, if I want a guy to throw a pitch up in the zone more, but um, it can be really difficult if the classification on the fastball is a sinker or if the classification on the curveball is a slider. 
all that stuff um, gives me um, a little bit of trouble. But um, ultimately, what I'm looking for is how the pitch moves and how it interacts with the other pitches in the pitch's repertoire. So in that sense, it doesn't matter quite as much. Um, one of the things I'm always looking for is like tunneling. So, you know, if the fastball plays really well off the curveball, if it's classified as a slider, it doesn't matter because I can see, okay, it's moving this way. It's still tunneling well off the pitch. And actually you run into that problem a lot when you're scouting too. um, scouting minor leaguers is you'll see a guy throw a breaking ball and you'll say, is that a curveball or is that a slider? And if you haven't seen the guy before if you haven't researched to say like you know he throws a curveball or he throws a slider it can be difficult but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter that much what you call it as long as you know what it's doing and how it relates to the rest of the repertoire so it just leads to you need to be a little bit more careful um when you're in those type of situations and actually sometimes a pitch classification you bring up harvey because i wrote about him a little bit near the beginning of the season about how his curveball has gotten more horizontal. Um, you know, he going into this year, he had more of like a 11, um, seven type of curveball. Um, but now it's really gone like more horizontal. But I think if that pitch was classified as a slider, then, you know, and suddenly his slider rate goes way up and his curveball rate goes way down, then maybe you, you can learn something just from that. So sometimes when I see like, a big disparity where a guy's ab- abandoned one breaking ball and has started throwing another breaking ball. I'm asking, is that the same breaking ball just moving slightly differently? And then that can lead me to something. So in some ways, those classifications can actually help if you you're really paying attention to the guy. And you also got to have to watch some film at that point too, to see, okay, is he throwing a different pitch? Um, you know, what is, Maybe the announcer said something, or maybe you can find an article where he says, you know, I'm throwing a slider now instead of a curveball, or I'm just, you know, throwing the same pitch. So it just leads to sometimes additional research. Do you use the Baseball Savant StatCast metrics for pitch, pitch movement? Yes, I do. Um, that's one of the main things I rely on um, along those lines. You mentioned tunneling, and I think this is a really interesting concept because it makes so much sense to me on a just a basic level that if you're throwing a pitch from exactly the same arm slot and release point, but one time it goes straight up and the other time it goes straight down, that's got to be an advantage to the pitcher because you're not giving things away. What do we know about the effects of pitch effectiveness when you do tunneling better? So there's a good amount of public research on that now, but it's kind of a new field. So I feel like it's one of those things that's been known in baseball circles for a while now. Um, and But it's vernacular. It's new vernacular, and it's a new field of statistical research. So I think we have seen a good amount to prove that tunneling does have an effect. Um, and we have, you know, better metrics now, such as stuff from Baseball Savant, where you can see perceived spin. Um, essentially like what the hitter is seeing, like as the pitch is coming into the plate, we have good information now on trying on at least seeing which guys are tunneling. Um, and we have a good amount of information on the effects of it, but I feel like we still have a good ways to go in that field. And because it's still an emerging field, you know, it's one of those things where beginning of sabermetrics, we thought we knew a lot more than we did. Um, 
And I think that it's one of those type of situations where we think we know a decent amount, but there's going to be a lot more research that comes out in coming years that might dispel some of the notions that we think we know. I know for a fact that when I prepare for my drafts, I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to it because I think it might be one of those hidden things that all of a sudden results in in a pitcher really taking a step up in his results. And I, as a fantasy player primarily, I'm interested in results more than I am in the more abstract uh, analyses that we see sometimes that the pitch is moving by X and therefore ZRA ought to be X, but it's two runs higher than X all right, two runs higher is enough for me. You know, I, I, I'm not interested. But if I can uh, see that there's some kind of benefit to whatever it is that I'm reading about, then certainly I'm going to be interested. Back to the idea of pitch classification, Tanner, in the Driveline article, they came up with this grid. I don't know if you've seen it, but they said it would be much more yeah. descriptive of the pitches. And it had 33 different pitch types, which at a certain point starts to seem to me to be so fragmented that it stops being useful. But I like the names. I have to admit, Dasher, driver, and dropper, kind of Santa's reindeer kind of deal going on there. They had <laughs> a, a jammer, and my favorite one was the slutter because I just like to see Joe Buck say it on TV. I, I presume <laughs> it's a slider cutter kind of somewhere in that yeah. range, yeah. But, but as fun as it all might be, how do you think a typing system that had 33 pitches or maybe even more would affect our ability to analyze and react to pitch mix? So, so much of what we do as fantasy analysts and as baseball analysts in general comes down to communication. And I think the general lexicon we have now has been established for so long, you know, that this is a cutter, looks like this, that I think that moving to that sort of system would impede communication in a big way. And, you know, I think that going back to scouting, you can say, you know, it's a curveball that has blank clock movement and, you know, breaks hard this way um so i think that that style of communication is more effective because it's more universal um and i think maybe in like baseball front offices if that lexicon could be uh, adapted then it might lead to some value just because you know we're at that point all speaking the same language and it's a little bit more precise but i think in the general um public sphere i don't think that anything like that is going to catch on or probably should just because I think it will impede communication more than improve it. I've been in communications my whole life and <laughs> my devil's advocate position on, on that, and I understand exactly what you're saying, but there's also a danger, it seems to me, insofar as communications is concerned, that if you're using terms that don't mean the same thing to talk about things that sound like they mean the same thing, that maybe that could interfere with communications. So if you say to me, you know, he's got this outstanding curveball and I'm thinking curveball more or less 12 to six or 11 to seven, something like that. But you're actually yeah. talking about a pitch that you saw that was breaking more, you know, uh, more horizontally than, than that. We might be at cross purposes and you, the, what you're trying to communicate to me about that particular pitch might not be as accurate as I would like as a consumer of the information because I'm thinking of something entirely different. And all of the pitches are like that, right? There's gradations of all of them. And I think the challenge in communications is you have to find that nice balancing point where the term is descriptive enough so that everybody agrees what it means, but not so general that we can all talk about a curveball and all have 10 different curveballs mean 10 different things. Right. But if I talk to you right now about a 12, if I say a guy has a really good 12 to six curveball, or if I say that guy has a really good, like, uh, you know, 11 to 
five curveball, then that's something that we communicate. And I can say, you know, it has hard break. We There's, I think, terminology that's been established in scouting circles for a little while now that if you add a little bit more description onto it, I understand the desire to get it down to one word, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be something that we're going to be able to fully communicate well to the public. If you're really throwing that many terms at them, because, you know, that's something that, you know, the average baseball fan has taken forever to explain what war is. And most people still don't know what it is. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was thinking that too, but on the other hand, in a situation that you're in, where you're talking, where in your uh, um, uh, arsenal report at baseballhq.com, you're saying this guy's pitch mix is 37% fastball, 25% mm-hmm. curveball. Okay, but what kind of curveball, right? And so right. it that must be it poses a challenge to you as the communicator because not all curveballs are created equal. Absolutely, yeah, and that's something that you know if I'm really going into the curveball, that's something I've got to show visually a lot of times that's why i include a lot of gifts in my articles a lot of times because you know it's good to show the reader what we're talking about so that we're working on the same frame or i'll describe you know this pitch has this much vertical movement or horizontal movement and generally it looks like this i think that that's a challenge that the writer has to um rise up to but i'm not sure that going to a different fully different terminology will help, but it does fall on the writer to really describe what they're talking about, either visually or um, with words. Yeah, I think visually can be a help, but then you come back to the idea that we'd like as receivers of the communication to be able to generalize from the information we hear. So if, if, even if you add the detail, 12 to six curveball, 11 to seven curveball, nine to three curveball or whatever, whatever yeah. qualifier you add to it, um, it's still not it, not as helpful to me because I know that a curveball pitcher has these certain tendencies, but now you're trying to give me three different kinds of curveballs and do they all have different kinds of tendencies as far as getting guys out? Yeah, I mean, it's even tougher if you're talking about guys who vary curveballs. Um, I'm thinking about like Rich Hill, for example, of, you know, a guy who throws like five different curveballs at least, or you Darvish, you know, that can basically throw whatever he wants so you know at those points it does become kind of difficult to your point of you know saying he's throwing his slow curveball or he's throwing his harder curveball you know if you're but if baseball savant is classifying both of those pitches as curveball and just kind of combining them together then it becomes kind of difficult um there aren't too many guys there aren't too many darvishes out there but there are occasions where a little bit more specific in terms of classification might be helpful but um also generally like you said though it's important that w- no matter how you're communicating it that you're telling whoever you're talking to or your reader exactly w- what pitch you're talking about something else tanner that interests me goes beyond the mix and even the effectiveness of individual pitches and that's the sequence of the mix and how that can affect pitcher outcomes we hear lots of discussion you mentioned it earlier yourself how a pitcher can set up a hitter with fastball up curveball away and down uh, fastball up and in you know and, and they're using one pitch to literally set up the next one plant the idea in a guy's mind or get him 
familiar with how something looks and then surprising with something that looks the same but acts differently. Uh, Greg Maddox was famous for this, might be the poster child for using one pitch to set up another. How likely is it that two pitchers with identical arsenals, do you think, could have different levels of uh, effectiveness based on how they deploy the arsenals in game situations? Oh, we've seen this multiple times of guys, you know, that aren't using their arsenals in the right way. And then they go somewhere else and they're, they run into a different pitching coach or combination pitching coach front office that tells them that, okay, we have this, we have this idea of how you could game plan sequence pitches off of another and suddenly they're more successful. Um, Like Cole was a great example of that as a guy, you know, that was had, he didn't suddenly invent a high fastball or a curveball when he went to Houston. He just started using those pitches differently and more effectively. Um, so that's is absolutely a huge part of it. If you have a guy that, and that's also where command comes into play too, because you know you could have the greatest game plan in the world for how you're going to execute pitches, but if you're throwing your curveball nowhere close to the strike zone, then you can't set that doesn't set up anything. So you have to have a guy with the right tool, tools and both in terms of stuff and command. And then you have to have the perfect storm of also having a organization that has a good game plan for how to most effectively deploy that stuff for that pitcher. You mentioned stuff and command. Uh, how much do you look at stuff plus command plus these are new metrics that have come out recently that are being attempting to be much more granular about the quality of the individual pitch more or less in flight yeah i've read a lot about that um i tried to absorb um as much of that as i can currently i think the information was close to being public in terms of like leaderboards or it might be out now but um i remember um eno was talking about because he uses a lot of eno saris um writer for the athletic he uses a lot of that information in his columns And he was saying maybe that information will be public soon. But I tried to, you know, read those articles and get what I can from them and maybe play around with that data a little bit once I um, get the ability to. I think it would be really interesting to find out as well, because especially the idea of command plus, because we have this metric at baseballhq.com, which we call control, which is basically a walk rate. And we think, well, if the guy's not walking a lot of guys, then he has good command. But increasingly what we're hearing is not necessarily, you know, if he's, if he meant no. to throw it on, on the outside corner and gets it inside and still gets a, a strike out of it, he succeeded in not walking a guy and getting a strike, but he didn't do what he intended to do. And if you're trying to game plan effectively, it kind of depends on the idea that if you say, okay, here's your game plan up and in, down and away, but the guy can't get it up and in consistently or down and away consistently, then it's not a game plan at all. It's kind of a a bit of a mishmash. Right. Yeah. And that's something like going back, I think I've talked about glass now a little bit at this point, but you know, that was something where I think the pirates were trying to have him spot up on like inside outside a lot. Um, you know, work with his stuff down in the zone, locate, but he wasn't really able to do that effectively. So, you know, in terms of, okay, if you have a guy with great stuff who doesn't command it, how could you work with that? Um, and, you know, you see so many guys now that have the great stuff that don't have command, but yet they're able to throw the stuff in general vicinities. Um, maybe they couldn't hit a spot, but they could throw a fastball somewhat up in the zone if they tried, or maybe if they miss a little bit down, 
because they throw so hard or have such good stuff, it doesn't hurt them as much. Um, so it's all about, you know, knowing what the pitcher can do and then working off of um, their strengths. You know, unless you're trying to reinvent the wheel with them, maybe in the off season, you know, add a new pitch to their mix or, you know, decide that they're going to throw a pitch more. A lot of it is just working with their strengths. One of the holy grails of pitching analysis, Tanner, for fantasy purposes at least, has been trying to classify pitchers into groups or cadres of like pitchers, making it easier to assess how hitters fare against pitchers in a group rather than one pitcher by one pitcher. And the idea is that you can look at 10 or 12 pitcher types rather than 200 individual pitchers, and you can say that you know pitcher 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all similar enough that we can pool their results against pitchers against hitters of various kinds and say a pitcher of this general type will have this result against a hitter of a, of a particular type, which would be very helpful in projecting, especially uh, in short-run situations. It seems obvious that pitch mix would be part of the solution to this model, but how do you think research and analysis of the type you're doing might dovetail with this level of pitcher categorization and classification? So I want to start First, with a little bit of, um, I guess, reticence about this to some degree, only because pitchers, no pitcher throws exactly the same. And, you know, they might have somewhat similar stuff, but they deli- one pitcher has deception in a certain way that makes it work completely differently. Um, so I think generally, if we're working with that, I would, I would like to see smaller groups of pitchers, just because if you're having wide categories of pitching and saying this is a soft tossing lefty you know fastball changeup type then there are a lot of different flavors of soft tossing lefties with fastball changeups so i think that if we're very careful about it and we use small enough groups that pitchers are um similar and like you said in terms of pitch mix also using their pitches about similarly in terms of usage if we're really careful about it, that stuff can be useful. Um, and I think it's a good thing to be looking into. But I think it's just also something that, you know, we need to be very careful about who we're comparing to who and make sure that those pitchers actually do um, work in similar ways in practice. And, you know, their deliveries even would be kind of similar. Because how the pitcher delivers the ball is a lot of how the pitcher sees it or how the hitter sees it. It's not just about... um you know, what the pitch ultimately does as it comes to the plate. Yeah, it's it seems to me that when you start talking about what kind of pitcher a guy is, or if you're trying to type or classify a pitcher, you'd have pitch mix, you might have body type and size, left hand, right hand, but then you've got the idea of release points and tunneling and, and uh extension and and you know perceived release point and there's a million variables going on and it just seems like there's a reason they call it the holy grail nobody ever found it right <laughs> and i think that yeah. may be what what we're looking at here that it's a it's a monumental challenge in data classification and maybe you're going to be the guy who solves it because you're a data <laughs> classification type of guy uh, there's a really good analyst who goes by the just the name ben and the blog is called complete game loss it's a really good blog and mm-hmm. he looked at this season's pitchers just by pitch mix. He said, you know, if you throw it 5% or more in a game, you count as having that in your arsenal. 
and there was 37 different combinations using the seven pitch types, you know, fastball change or two seam, four seam uh, change up and that, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing, which makes it, it just makes it seem like if just in this little short span using this very coarse definition material has resulted in 37 groups, you know, if you started subdividing them by release point, extension, perceived spin, all of these kind of things, pretty soon you're going to have, you know, 250 pitchers in 247 groups. Right. And, you know, that's one of also the challenges of modeling is, you know, I, I talked about the need for specificity, but at the same point, um, one of the better principles of modeling best practices, I guess, is that you want the simplest model that can convey the most information as possible. Um, so more complicated models are not necessarily better at prediction than simpler models. Um, and if you have, I guess it, it takes a lot of trial and error along those lines of saying, okay, we think extension matters and, you know, intuitively it should matter. But I think a lot of the research I've read is that extension is one of those things that only matters for certain pitchers. Like it doesn't really matter for people in the middle as much. Like I think of like Bailey Falter of the Phillies as a good example of a guy who's extreme about it, who gets almost, I think it's like the second most extension to the plate of any pitcher in baseball. And his stuff's kind of mediocre, but it really works for him because of how weird he is. Um, And, you know, hitters aren't, hitters aren't used to that at all. So I think if you're looking at 37 possible groupings, um, I think that could do pretty well. Um, and I think that could um, give some insight. Um, I would be curious about what variables went into that model. Um, because I haven't read um, what he was saying on that, but um, I think that gets close. Ideally, I think if I were designing it, I would want kind of groups of like five or 10 pitchers. Um, I would want it to almost be that particular to get the maximum type of insight out of it. Just because of the number of possible variables. And then you, you know, have to do a lot of testing to see, okay, are these guys, when they throw these pitches, are they getting similar results? And, or when they do, like we were talking about sequencing, if they throw a high fastball and they throw a curveball off of it, um, is in general, do they get similar results if they've located it similarly? At you know, if, if I'm assuming in these groups that we're working with guys of similar velocities on their pitches, so <laughs> yeah, just to right. add that in with the rest of it, right? Yeah, right. So you know, it it would be one of those things where you would want to see one is the stuff similar, you know, is the body similar, all this type of stuff you're talking about, but then two is the effect the same? Because if the effect is different, then we have to say, okay, what's different? Is you know, we've all seen the guys pumping 98 with net seemingly nasty sliders to get hit around the yard and we can't figure out why a lot of that has come into you know now we know about spin rate spin efficiency there's some stuff there that gives us some insight but at the same time you know there's still plenty we don't know along those lines so i think it's just something to be careful about in terms of grouping pitchers together as comps because comps are very dangerous 
Well, it's all really interesting stuff. I think we're only just scratching the surface of it as an industry and as a community. And like I said, it's guys like you who are going to move the ball forward. I think it's certainly not going to be guys like me with my journalism background. Uh, Tanner, this has been interesting and informative so far and certainly plenty of food for thought. We'll give you a break. Uh, We'll go to our Market Watch Player News reports with Nick and Ray, and we'll get you back in a few minutes so we can keep the discussion going, talk about some sticky wickets. That sounds good. It's been fun so far. I look forward to the second part. Tanner Smith writes the Arsenal Report at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up now, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick with the National League News, Ray with the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Up and going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Cologne carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. I guess we have to start with some very sad news for fantasy managers, for Atlanta, and for baseball in general. Uh, Ronald Acuna has been lost for the season. He's got a torn ACL, may even uh, follow into next year before he's 100% ready to go. Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com, and I have to say, when you lose a Ronald Acuna in real baseball or fantasy baseball, the uh, choices you have to replace him are, to be charitable, limited. Yes, they are definitely. This is not—he's not the kind of ball player you can replace, uh, and and Atlanta will not be able to replace him. And the options they have are not exceptionally promising. On July 11th, they started an outfield of uh, Ade Adrianza, Guillermo Heredia, and Orlando Arcia in the outfield. The Braves seem reluctant to call up either Christian Pache or Drew Waters, their top prospects from AAA. And actually, neither neither uh, Waters nor Pache has impressed. Uh, and, and neither suggests they deserve a recall the way they perform. Uh, they did call up Yohan Camargo. Uh, we've covered him in playing time today regularly over the past couple of years as he shuttled between Atlanta and Gwinnett. Uh, not a plus fantasy player since 2018. Uh, this year, 0 for 15 with Atlanta entering play on July 11th. The best of a bad lot, I guess. Uh, We happen to have talked about Orlando Arcia last week, Nick, and with the Acuna injury, his playing time should be a little more solid in the short term at least. Uh, Brad Coleman also happened to cover Arcia as a pre-market potential target in his Market Pulse column where he looks at all the player movement in fantasy leagues. What is Brad Coleman's latest analysis on Orlando Arcia? Well, R.C. is a former top prospect at shortstop, and he was traded to Atlanta and immediately demoted to the minors following a 1-for-11 start with, uh, with Milwaukee. Uh, rather than pout, the still only 26-year-old R.C. went to work getting his game back together after a first half in which he posted a fine 330, 380, 552 line at AAA. He was rewarded with a July 4th recall. R.C. immediately started four games in left field, provided multi-hit performances in two of them, a plus defender at both shortstop and third base. He has lots of pass for playing time and continues to wield a productive bat in Atlanta. 
Well, I looked at that and I thought, well, right away, he's not going to play at shortstop unless there's an injury to Dansby Swanson. But it looks like there is going to be something of a path to playing time. But then Atlantic almost immediately went out and perhaps removed a little bit of that path or put a bit of an obstacle into that path by acquiring outfielder Jock Peterson in trade from the Cubs. Uh, what's going on here and what role is Jock Peterson likely to play in this motley crew? Well, you know, it's one of those things that's, it's one of those things that uh, they're trying to get what production they can and mix and match and do what they can to, uh, uh, to come up with something in the outfield. Jock Peterson certainly provides a, uh, an obstacle playing time for other folks. But uh, on the other hand, and, and some good power for Peterson, uh, but on the other hand, not a great batting average. So it's going to be one of those uh, situations where uh, they'll have to mix, mix and match and see what they can do in, on a particular day, put the best outfield together that they can. Peterson has, has shown himself to get some pretty good runs going every once in a while, and they'll have to hope that that's uh, certainly something that can happen. I was looking at his power as well, and the one thing that struck me about it is he doesn't generate any of it against left-handed pitching, and I think that's going to be a problem for Atlanta, but also for his fantasy managers because you have to look at him in a particular week and wonder if he's going to play, if he's going to play very much, if he's going to just be a pinch hitter, which is what the Cubs were doing with him for the most part when they had left-handed pitching. He sat. And then he came into the game for a single at bat. You know when they when they went to the bullpen later on and put a right hander in there. He's got a two hundred and thirty point platoon split on his OPS since two thousand nineteen. Uh, he can hit the uh, right handed pitching like nobody's business, but he can't hit left handers. And I think that may be a problem. And it may be an opportunity for Arcia to sneak in if if anybody's worried that uh, Peterson is going to crowd out some of Arcia's playing time. I think. Because they acquired him in trade, Nick, it seems likely that they're going to give Peterson most of the running. He's also probably the most established hitter of the bunch that we talked about. But uh, I think there are ways for the other guys to get in on the mix, and I'm probably going to be the hot hand. Yeah, they, they may. I probably will be the hot hand. Over the last month, Peterson has only a 701 OPS, four home runs, and 92 at bats with the Cubs, and uh, only a 217 batting average. So. He has not been hitting particularly hot lately. Uh, he certainly has shown in the past that he can have a hot, a hot month or a hot two weeks or that sort of thing. So during June, he was extremely hot uh, for the Cubs with seven homers and 16 RBIs, but only a 2-11 batting average. So uh, some power there, not going to get on base a lot. Yeah, and of course, uh, whenever I hear stats like that, my, my thought is, you know, pretty much every player has a hot two weeks now and again. It's almost impossible not to. The question is, in the longer run, because you can't time those those hot runs. You know, I, I talked with Chris Liss from Rotowire about this years ago here on Baseball HQ Radio, and, and the debate was, is there such a thing as a hot streak? And uh, we both concluded independently doing the research about it that, yes, there is, but there's no way to predict it. You know, it happens, but you don't know that it's going to happen. And the fact that it does happen doesn't mean it's going to stop at any point. It's just entirely random. So if you're saying, you know, the, a guy like Peterson, well, he's going to get hot. Of course he's going to get hot. They all get hot. But if you're thinking you're going to pick him up now because he's bound to get hot playing in Atlanta, I, I don't think that's sound management. I think you're right. And it's one of those things where, where you know, as a fantasy manager, if you're going to put him in, you figure you're going to put him in the lineup where he gets a hot streak going. But you may have to wait three or four games into that hot streak to see whether this is real. And by that point, the hot streak may be over within a week. Maybe a cold streak by the time that you realize that it isn't a hot streak. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I think the play for Peterson, if your league rules allow it and the format that you're playing allows it, is you'll try to get him into the lineup when they, you know that Atlanta's looking at a run of right-handed pitching uh, to hit against because if Peterson's going to do anything power-wise, then it's going to be against right-handed pitching and he's not going to do anything average-wise against anybody. So uh, that's the caveat, for I think, for Jock Peterson. Uh, in general, the question, I think, we thought was settled by this trade is whether the Braves are buyers or sellers. Do you think that's actually settled? No, I don't. I think what we're looking at here, the Braves are the Braves are only four games out in the National League East, so you know they've got a shot at doing something. Uh, and certainly, they're not they're, they, The signal in getting Peterson is they're not going to give up right away just because the team is out. But uh, they're also below five hundred, so they're not going to get a wild card berth. So I think they'll give themselves a couple of weeks to see what happens. Uh, as the trade deadline approaches, if they if they manage to get into first place in that in that time, or or stay right where they are and not be too far back, they might in fact be buyers at the trade deadline. But if they go into a losing streak and lose five or six games in a row and find themselves suddenly ten games back, uh, my guess is they'll be sellers at the trade deadline. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's the case, that one of the guys they try to trade away is Jock Peterson. It could be this is the very epitome of a short-term rental. Uh, staying in that market pulse column, Nick, Brad Coleman uh, wrote about the Mets pitcher Tyler McGill. And uh, Brad Coleman is optimistic about Tyler McGill. He is. With a plus fastball complemented by a solid and improving secondary stuff, McGill has shown the ability to miss bats while maintaining very solid control. Uh, he failed to get a win over his first three starts, uh, but it's shown enough to keep getting the ball for the Mets, and fantasy owners should be gaining some confidence in him. Certainly someone you might want to take a look at at this point, uh, only owned by 8% ownership uh, at this point, uh, so, but, so he may be available in your league, and if you're looking for pitching, a guy you might want to take a chance on. I don't know very much about Tyler McGill, I have to admit, and he was kind of hard to look up because both his first name and last name are spelled oddly. Tyler is spelled with an O where the E usually is, and McGill I always think of as M-C capital G, and it's not, it's M-E-G-I-L-L. So if you're looking him up, keep those uh, weird spelling situations in mind. But uh, I looked up his record at baseballreference.com to check into his minor league path, and uh, He's only had four years in the minor leagues, and he started at age 22 in low A. Do you know anything about why he didn't start at, you know, 18 or 19 like most guys? No, I don't. I don't have any idea. Well, the interesting thing about him, Nick, is he's had four years, as I said, in the minor leagues. Uh, well, three, really, because 2020 doesn't count. It was just at the camp. But in 2018, he was in low A, 321 ERA. 2019, he's a high A single A, double A, and uh, he's got a 352 ERA, so pretty much similar. Then he moves up double A, triple A in the next year, 335, and in the major league so far this year, 350. So he's had four years at four different levels, and his ERA is essentially the same in all four of them. And his strikeout rates, 12, 12, 13, 13. This guy seems to just do what he does wherever he is. He does. I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't shown, uh, as you said, he's progressed steadily, kept at about the same level. That level sets a clear expectation of what we can uh, maybe be able to get from him. Uh, and so maybe he'll, he'll step in and do the same thing at the major leagues that he's done consistently at the minors. 
and not that this is an indictment of of him in particular because the jump from the the minor leagues at AAA to the major leagues is the most serious one of all but his whip has shot up quite a bit because his walk rate more or less doubled from his uh, mixed season in 2021 in uh, AA and AAA from 2.7 to about 4.5 walks and his home run rate has doubled from 7 per 9 uh, 0.7 per 9 to 1.5 per 9 so I don't think Tyler McGill's a, a slam dunk by any means but you know, the Mets seem to have some idea what they're doing with pitching, so uh, certainly somebody to look at at any rate, and that's what Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column is doing, is getting you to look at people and see how they fit into your plans. Uh, Speaking of pitching, the Major League Baseball office extended Dodgers right-hander Trevor Bauer's administrative leave, they call it. The office continues to investigate uh, something about uh, an assault allegation. Uh, Jock Thompson covers this for playing time today. Bauer's not going to pitch for the foreseeable short future anyway. Who's going to get his innings? Well, it looks like, like uh, we kind of mentioned this, I think, last week, that David Price is the one who will likely get the innings. David Price has been pitching in, in relief for the Dodgers, 28 innings pitched so far, 3.88 uh, ERA, 3.75 XERA, 22% strikeout rate, 52% ground ball rate. So uh, he's been he's been solid uh, in relief. At this point, he's stretched out to three innings pitched, uh, so he can really help in very short order. And, I believe, as I was looking at the at the setup for the rotation, right now expected to pitch the third game, to start the third game uh, coming out of the break for the Dodgers. Uh, that could, of course, change as the rotations are fairly uh, uh, sloppy at this point as they're trying to figure out exactly what order pitchers are going to go in. And you mentioned he's been stretching out, but only three innings, so that there's it seems like a fairly decent chance that even if he draws the start this weekend, he may get only three, four innings in and doesn't have a shot at a win, even if they score a hundred runs for him, unless maybe he breezes through the uh, first couple of innings on minimum pitches, maybe they'll let him go into the fifth, but uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, very definitely at this point. I mean, he's not going to be, uh, the first start could be a very short start and essentially be a bullpen, bullpen game, but, uh, but he's someone who can help out down the stretch. Uh, if you- in a uh, a fantasy league. Says something about the Dodgers' pitching depth when they can lose one Cy Young winner and replace him with another Cy Young winner. Not a bad situation to be in at the worst of times, I guess. Uh, Stephen Nickrand's latest Batting Buyer's Guide column, Nick looks at batting eye and stat cast leaders over the last calendar year, from July the 1st of last year through June the 30th of this year. It's an interesting way to go about it. And uh, one of the names that got onto his batter's list was San Francisco first baseman outfielder Darren Ruff. Now, someone who's definitely, I think, worth taking a look at at this point. Over the last year, since July of 2020, uh, Darren Ruff has had an 872 OPS at 184 at-bats. He draws walks, 15% walk rate. He hits the ball hard, 91.9 miles per hour exit velocity, barreling at a good rate, 11.8% barrel rate. Uh, and so far this season, been doing very well. I mean, Ruff's the right-handed hitter, so he gets in there mostly against left-handers. But over the last month, a 465 on-base percentage. That's not a mistake. 465 on-base percentage. Over the last month, three homers, seven RBIs, nine runs scored. Not bad at all. If you're in an OBP league, this is definitely a guy to look at. Uh, but in a regular league, a 324 batting average over the last month. So someone that might be of some value with injuries and that sort of thing uh, and, and tends to be hitting toward the middle of the San Francisco lineup when he's in there. I was looking at their roster, and uh, the 
obvious place seems to be first base with Brandon Belt on the shelf. They're playing Lamont Wade Jr. there uh, quite a bit. And uh, in the outfield, of course, I don't think Yastrzemski's going anywhere. But then you've got Alex Dickerson and Stephen Duggar and guys like that who may be uh, a little bit vulnerable to left-handed pitching, which would be a nice place for uh, Darren Ruff to step up, as you said. And uh, even in a platoon role, depending on how your roster sets up, sometimes, although you hate to lose all the at-bats and plate appearances, there are situations where you don't mind because the plate appearances that you're losing would have been the worst ones anyway. Right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, especially in, in an on-base percentage league, a guy that's got an OBP of close to 400 is valuable even if the at-bats are limited. Nick, the closer situation in Philadelphia has been a mess for much of the season. I know as somebody who had Hector Neris on a couple of rosters. And now there's a new name, apparently, at the end of the bullpen. Ranger Suarez has taken over as the new closer in Philadelphia. Off to an inauspicious start. He blew two straight saves in his first two opportunities. Got the win in the first one, actually. They came back. But has since gone two for two and seems to be settling into the role. Uh, Alain de Leonardis writes about the Philadelphia club in his uh, National League East coverage and playing time tomorrow. And he was looking at their bullpen in particular in this week's column. Uh, can Ranger Suarez hold down the closer job in Philadelphia is what everybody wants to know. Well, absolutely. And at this point, as, as uh, de Leonardis says, the Philly bullpen has been a disaster. To say that is actually an insult to disaster. Hector Neris hasn't been able to show any kind of consistency as the closer over the past two years. 63% save percentage 2020, 65% in 2021, suffered through bouts of wobbly control, 11% walk rate. Uh, so Jose Alvarado comes in, and the ultimate uh, hold my beer move. He's walked 29 batters in 34 innings, 19% walk rate, making him completely unfit to close. Both Connor Brogdon and Sam Coonrod showed on early promise, but both have stumbled on account of lackluster skills. Uh, Brogdon, a curiously low 21% strikeout rate in spite of a, a solid first pitch, in spite of a solid swinging strike rate. And injuries, and Coonrod's out with a forearm tendonitis, and even backup uh, option Archie Bradley uh, was brought on board during the offseason to provide some, some ballast, and he's proven to be more of an anchor than anything else, a minus 26 PPP so far in 22 innings pitch. So here comes Ranger Suarez. Suarez has the skills, 18% uh, strikeout minus walk rate, 129 BPV. At the moment, he has the opportunity and some eye-popping surface stats. 0.770 RA, 0.74 whip, except candy coating is covering a somewhat less appealing 2.92 XDRA, although that's better than the bullpen has been producing, being propped up by a 17% hit rate and a 96% strand rate, both figures that are bound to uh, sink very soon. So Suarez has been deployed so far for multiple innings more often than not, 13 to 21 appearances, going as many as three innings on some on one occasion. So manager Joe Girardi has really appreciated the flexibility Suarez has afforded him, so limiting him to a traditional one-inning closer role would mean giving up a lot of versatility and a lot of endurance. And for that reason, we're currently hedging his future save percentage, giving him a 25% share compared to 30% for Neris. Um, so there's still a pretty good chance that Neris will get some work. If you have Hector Neris on your roster, you probably don't want to drop him. Uh, but uh, maybe Suarez will help to, uh, to shore up the end of that bullpen, uh, at least in the short term. Since they made him the closer, as I mentioned, he blew his first opportunity, and uh, that 
that was back in uh, late June against the Mets, and they were leading, and he lost the lost the deal. Then his last four outings have just been tremendous. Uh, we talked about hot streaks, uh, four straight games. He uh, blew the first save, but not so badly that they, that they uh, weren't in position to come back and get the win, as I mentioned. Then he's got a uh, save opportunity converted, uh, came in to clean up in an eight nothing win and uh, converted a, a second save. And over that time, gosh, he's been uh, nothing short of terrific. I mean, he's already been nothing short of terrific, you mentioned, but his uh, ERA for that four-game stretch, zero, and his whip is, uh, he's given up five base runners in six innings, so he's well under one in that department too. Now, the one thing, Nick, that I would take issue with Alan's analysis is this idea that because his strand rate and hit rate are unusually extreme, that regression is bound to happen soon. And I think that's a, that can be a bit misleading because regression is bound to happen, but there's no guarantee it's going to happen soon. It could happen at any time, and it could be a year from now that it happens, or it could be tomorrow that it happens, and that's what makes it a, a gamble. We have to expect that he's not going to maintain an 077 ERA, but we can't expect that he's going to all of a sudden start pitching to a, uh, whatever his expected ERA was, you said, around three, I guess. Right. I mean, at this point, if you look at Ranger Suarez's record, back back to the beginning of the season, this is a guy who's given up. He did blow that first save, gave up a home run, blew the situation. But in 35 innings pitched, he's given up three earned runs all season. Uh, before that home run, the last time he gave up an earned run prior to that home run was June the 15th. So uh, one, one earned run in the past month, uh, that's a guy I'll take on my, on my closing situation any day of the week yeah because the record shows that this guy is doing well and not giving up earned runs and i think we sometimes say oh well the pressure of being the closer is going to get to him and uh, everything's going to go wrong and sometimes we have to expect that maybe the xra and other era estimators like that just don't get what this guy's doing it doesn't reflect in the skill set that those metrics are based on, and sometimes those estimators are just not correct. And if that's the case, Ranger Suarez could hold this job a lot more easily than a lot of people are giving him credit for. Yeah, very very definitely. So if you don't have Ranger Suarez on your roster and he's still sitting out there, he's somebody I would go get at the moment because right now he's got the job. And... Uh, Proud to say that I did go and get him, actually, in, in my TGFBI league. And uh, I've got uh, Neris kind of hanging around on reserve just in case. But I like Ranger Suarez's chances to hold on to this. I guess then the next question will be how many save opportunities will there be and so forth. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. A really interesting week for uh, a short week with very little news going on. But uh, I guess next week we'll be back to it and uh, probably a big increase in the amount of player movement. I think so, very definitely. We'll see a lot of movement, I think, over the next week. All right, Nick, thanks very much. Talk to you in a week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League at BaseballHQ.com, co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Welcome to the second half, PD. Yeah, it seems like only Tuesday we were talking about baseball. <laughs> I think it was Tuesday. It was, and for those of you who uh, might not have noticed it in your pod getter or at uh, baseballhq.com slash radio, uh, we had a roundtable discussion. Ray, Todd Zola, and I, I thought it went very well. It was real interesting and fun. So if you didn't catch that, uh, 
give it a look, give it a listen, and uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's start off, since there's very little news this week, of course, because of the break. I looked through the uh, playing time today for today, and uh, the news was that Derek Holland has been recalled by the Detroit Tigers. That was the only news item in the American League of note, so <laughs> I guess we don't have much news to talk about. So let's talk instead about uh, some of the, these columns that uh, Stephen Nickrand has been doing this week starting with this idea of using the full season from July of last year, July 1st to June 30th of this year. So you basically are getting a full season spread over two seasons. And as we've talked about before, Ray, the idea of a season is a fairly arbitrary thing anyway. It's just a, you decide this is the date you're going to start looking and this is the date you're going to end and you can set those dates wherever you like. And that's what Stephen did. And what he did was he looked at in this batter's buyer's guide, uh, these 12-month season batting eye and stat cast leaders over that full span. And before we start, let's describe what batting eye is for listeners who might not be familiar with the term. Sure. Batting eye is one of our oldest metrics, actually. It's one that, uh, you know, you could derive from the, uh, the ancient box score. We don't need stat cast or anything like that to do it. It's basically your ratio of walks to strikeouts. So, uh, you know, how many walks you get uh, in a period of time divided by your strikeout rate. So it's a decimal number that ranges from zero to one, where, you know, it used to be that we liked to see a ratio as close to, we always like to see a ratio as close to one as possible. And it used to be that we would actually see those every now and then. And then a good batting eye might be like 0.7 or 0.8, 0.8. And then, you know, strikeouts took over the game. And now everything, anything that is, you know, within hailing distance of a uh, one walk to two strikeout, a 0.5 ratio is you know pretty much acceptable in today's game. I did some research a few years ago because the assumption was that that uh, batting eye was a indicator uh, of uh, batting average potential, and it turned out it really wasn't so much. But what it did turn out to be really good for was predicting power, and uh, I don't know how that's worked out over the years. But uh, I know as a projections guy, Ray, and a, as an analyst, you you're constantly monitoring the effectiveness of these metrics. What does batting eye tell us about a player? When we uh, when we compare him to himself or to the other guys on the field, yeah, it, it, your your older research there proves to be exactly right. It's that um, it's that the batting eye is doesn't always predict power because you can have plenty of people who have a good concept of the strike zone. But as we've l- learned with more recent data. Uh, data points that are disposal like hard hit rate and distribution of ground balls, line drives, and fly balls. You can have a great eye, but every time you swing, you either don't make great contact or hit the ball on the ground. Yeah, you're still not going to have any power, right? Mm-hmm. But what we what we also know from looking at spray charts and those cool charts that show isolated power and those sorts of things from areas of the strike zone, you know, quadrants both within and without the strike zone that power invariably comes from pitches closer to the heart of the plate, right? So sure. pit, so batters who only swing at pitchers who are closer to the pitches who are closer to the heart of the plate are going to have more power because they're swinging at the pitches that yield power. And if you're swinging at a ball 6 inches outside and 2 inches off the ground, I don't care how good contact you make, you're not hitting that ball over the fence. Unless you're Vladimir Guerrero Sr., but he's kind of an outlier in that regard. But look and he's at the, like 55 now, so. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Probably wouldn't hit over 250. When I look at the list, I do see 
some of the guys we really associate in the American League with power. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has tremendous uh, plate patience. We have uh, Alex Bregman has good power. Uh, Aaron Hicks had good power when he was playing. Well, you got in the National League Juan Soto and um, uh, guys like that. So Freddie Freeman's on that list. So the usual suspects are on there, but one name in the American League that really jumped out, I think, for Stephen and for us is Tony Kemp of the A's. Uh, not only a, a tremendous, versatile player because he's got infield and outfield eligibility, but he's walking more than he's striking out. Yeah, this is an interesting case. It might be one of those scenarios that we were just talking about earlier where a batting eye doesn't tell the whole story, but it looks like an emer- it's an emerging skill on Kemp, so we're going to want to keep an eye on it. You know, looking at his career numbers, you know, from 2016 to 2019, he had, you know, across four seasons, he had about a full season's worth of major league at-bats, and his batting eye was unremarkable. It was, you know, one of those, you know, it probably averaged out to be uh, under 0.5. It was more than two strikeouts for every walk. But starting last year in the short 2020 season and carrying over to this year, it's been very different. He's been averaging almost one walk to one strikeout. Now, that hasn't translated to more power yet, and the other metrics that we're talking about, you know, speci- specifically your metric, hard contact index, doesn't get super excited here because even though he's um, you know, controlling the walk, to, controlling the strike zone very well, exciting things aren't happening when he puts the bat on the ball yet. But, you know, he's age 29, which is not out- unreasonable for a power breakout. He's got four home runs and 180 at-bats this year which is more than is a better a better pace than he's been showing before. And sometimes it's the case that you know, we've seen this before, kind of like what you were saying about what batting eye is a leading indicator for and what it's not, that sometimes you know establishing better control of the strike zone is a first step to unlocking more power. So you know, we'll want to stay, a little, stay, stay tuned a little bit here and see if Kemp is, uh, you know, Kemp can, first of all, sustain his batting eye games, and he probably can because it's been going on for, you know, First, even study here the the last year now, right? Right. Um, but you know, it might be that there uh, there is still some weight and power to unlock here. Could use some uh, unlocking of his batting average. I did mention that it's uh, batting eye is not necessarily a precursor for batting average, and he's hitting two forty, which is pretty much in line with his career levels uh, two forty seven in twenty twenty, two twenty seven in two thousand nineteen in Houston, at least, where he played uh, the bulk of his games, but. If you're in an on-base league, the fact that he draws all these walks has pushed him up to nearly 370, which means he's a genuine yep. asset in in that format. The question is, is he ever going to translate the uh, the the control of the strike zone to any kind of power? And I think that's a bit more of a question for a guy like Tony Kemp. Uh, not so much for Carlos Santana. His uh, batting eye is 1.09, so he's a single decimal point behind uh, behind Kemp. But this guy does have legitimate power, also walking more than he's striking out, but it's manifesting much more uh, promisingly. Yeah, Santana is really sort of the poster child for this metric, right? For his for his career, which is now, you know, he's in his 11th season, going back to 2010, he's got uh, more walks and more strikeouts for his career, a batting out a ratio of over one. And I can't think of five guys in MLB who have that over 10 years right now, PD. It's just, it's so unusual. Uh, and, you know, the thing about him is he's slow and he tends to, uh, you, you know, when, when you're slow, even if you're make, co- making contact on good pitches, 
the ground balls are very frequently outs. The fly balls are always are generally outs unless they go over the fence or you know go for a double or something like that, which happens occasionally. So he's always been a good power source, but he's never because of those limitations and he's because he's not really a line drive hitter is what I'm trying to say. He's never really turned that batting eye into a plus batting average. He's got you know he's about a career 250 hitter or so, and you know he's 246 this season with 15 home runs and 50 RBIs in the first half. That's a it's a pretty typical half season line for him, but uh, you know, it's based on that. You know, again, you were talking about with Kemp, the walk rate is so good. He's a huge asset, non-base percentage leagues. The 16% walk rate compared to an 18% strikeout rate, you know, yields uh, is yielding a 368 on base percentage off of that uh, 246 batting average. So he's a huge batting average, a huge on base percentage asset. 366 on base percentage for his career and uh, he seems good for it year after year and, and yet he never gets any kind of recognition as far as ADPs or when you're reading about guys to draft uh, unless you're looking at sleepers or uh, per- perennially undervalued. Nobody ever takes Carlos Santana that seriously and I know he's uh, not generally considered a big home run source but he had 34 for Cleveland one year uh, uh, two years actually in 2019 and also again if you look back in uh, 2016 or 2017 I can't remember now but uh, 34 24 34 22 you know kind of those kind of numbers and it's been very very consistent even in the short season if you prorate it looks about like that so I think that's interesting another thing that uh, Stephen Nickrand looked at in this buyer's guide was Statcast metrics and starting with uh, average exit velocity and before we talk about some of those players I've heard from some analysts, including here at Baseball HQ Radio, that what we really can't trust average exit velocity because we don't know how it's distributed. The average could be distributed in the sort of if your average is 90, they're all 90, and that's not that great. But if your average is you know, half hundreds and half 80s, that's pretty good because the hundreds are really valuable. What are your thoughts as a guy who looks at these metrics and, and incorporates them into your projections and your analyses? about the value of average exit velocity as a metric. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough thing to tease out and for, for exactly the reason you say and what it's particularly tough to look at it in uh you know the raw way that Steven looks at it here. It's a it's a great filter because like when you come up with all these lists like we were saying even on the batting eye list, you eyeball it and you see a lot of names that you think belong there and a couple of that don't and your natural tendency is to look at the ones that don't and say, oh, here's, you know, why is, you know, Evan Lagoria in the middle of this list with between Vlad Jr., Ronald Acuna, and Mike Trout, you know, that catches your eye immediately, right? So you want to, you want to dig into that. But to your point, it doesn't, you know, that's not enough information to say, ooh, I need to completely reevaluate what I think Evan Lagoria is. It's just a springboard for further analysis. But the number here, the exit velocity, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you that much that Jorge Soler's got a 92.7 exit velocity and Christian Yelich is 92.6. You know, the decimal difference doesn't mean much, but in terms of a raw ranking, especially as you get to, you know, this time of year, the second half of the season, somebody who hasn't been on the IL and has, you know, multiple hundreds of at-bats we're talking about here, that distribution starts to normalize for everybody. So it gets, it, it gets, it, this list gets interesting to look at and especially in st- the way Steven's doing it here over a full calendar year, to get to get a bigger sample size out of it, and it's really, like I said, a jump, a springboard to go look at a player further who ranks somewhere on this list that you don't, you wouldn't have intuitively thought he belonged. 
Well, I know two players that intrigued you in that regard and intrigued me in that regard because I have uh, Jorge Soler on my uh, tout American League roster, and he's been a huge disappointment. But his average exit velocity of 93 puts him in the upper echelons of that particular metric. And Miguel Sano of Minnesota also uh, right around that 93 average exit velocity as well, and he's not having a good season either. So when you look at this as a springboard to look beyond, uh, what do you see about, uh, let's start with Sano, Terrible year. Yeah, terrible. And yet, of the two of them, I think he's a little less surprising just because the power is still there. He's got 15 home runs and 230 at-bats. He had 13 and 186 last year. He's not really that much worse this year. He was he's basically repl- – his first half of 2021 looks almost exactly like his entire 2020 season. So, you know, th- there's not a huge 2020 versus 2021, you know, skills change here. So this is kind of what he is, but I think you can re- sort of reasonably conclude from Steven's chart that he's got 28 home runs in the last calendar year. So he probably hit all of those hard, and those are pop- propping up his average his average exit velocity. But he also hits a lot of fly balls, particularly this year, which is why the batting average is down under 100. But he's hitting 47% fly balls, and only 15 of those fly balls have gone over the fence, which means there's a lot of you know, 310 foot cans of corn in there that are, that, that are dragging down that number. So it, it, it kind of explains, you know, you look at the stat line and it's not hard for me to, to match the stat line back to that exit velocity because every now and then he smacks one at 110, 115 mile, miles per hour, which, you know, props up that number. But there are a lot of 87 mile an hour. 30, you know, 320 foot fly balls in there, and that's how this all averages out to his, you know, 92.7 or whatever it is. But it's a, it's an interesting use case. It is, and uh, Jorge Soler, kind of the same thing, but perhaps even more pronounced insofar as this has not been a good year for Jorge Soler. It has not been a good year for Jorge Soler, and the thing that I, I'm looking at here, I didn't get a chance to go run down what how much of the, his average, his last 12 months exit velocity what the difference is from 2020 versus 2021, because I kind of wanted to see that. And I think it's probably substantial just by looking at our numbers, the metrics we have at, uh, available on Solaire's PlayerLink page. One very notable difference in Solaire last year, which wasn't great anyway. He had 228 over the short season with eight home runs last year um, versus this year when it's just been a disaster, is that he's, his line drive rate is cratered. And when he was good in 2019 and then even when he was – less good in 2020, his line drive, driveway w- was in the low 20%, 20% in 2019, 23% in 2020. And that'll pop up. Line drives, you know, don't off, you know, sometimes go for home runs, but are fantastic for propping up an exit velocity because, you know, those are all obviously, you know, generally hard hit balls. You get the occasional looping line drive, but generally those are squared up and those are going to be 95 plus mile an hour exit velocity events. 2021, his line drive rate is cratered to 14%. So he's got the same profile as Sano and the same problems. He's hitting 44% fly balls, which are only only seven of which have got over the fence. So that's a lot of cans of corn. He's hit 42% ground balls. He's not beating many of those out because he's not beat a foot. And only 14% line drives. And he's striking out a third of the time. So there's still, you know, this is a case where despite the exit velocity still being decent, there's so much else wrong in the skill set that exit velocity can't really make up for it. I think that's a really important point is that 
average and max exit velocities are interesting to look at, but if the player just doesn't put the ball in play often enough, it's one of those situations where you have to be aware of the fact that being able to hit the ball hard on those rare occasions when you hit it at all is not a marketable skill as far as fantasy baseball is concerned, unless you're willing to take the schneid on on batting average and we're talking about mike zanino here in a second which is a kind of a similar thing if your roster construction is such that you have a lot of high batting average guys somewhere else to offset the 200s that you're going to get from the zaninos and solaires and sonos of the world it's a workable roster strategy the problem is finding those batting average guys without giving up home runs sometimes can be a little more difficult that's exactly right and the other the, the other side of that coin uh, is that you can be more tolerant of average or maybe barely above average numbers in net metrics like exit velocity if the contact rate is higher because you're getting that much raw volume. You know, with cases like Sano and Soler where guys are striking out in one-third of their at-bats and at, at above average exit velocity isn't doing you much good. But if you can find somebody who's got a similar exit velocity but is putting the ball in, in play 85% of the time instead of 67% of the time, well, you'll get some mileage out of that. Uh, yes, exactly. So you'd hope. Moving on, I mentioned Mike Zanino, and he led in one of the categories that Stephen also looked at, which is barrel rate over the last full 12-month period. 25% barrel rate for Mike Zanino, which is five points better than anyone else in the major leagues. Yeah, this, this one, I, I talked earlier about some of these other lists about a player who kind of appears on a list that you don't expect, or you look at him in the neighborhood of the other players, and you're like, I need to go look more to see what's happening here. This is a case where you look at this list and you're like, oh, this completely explains what's going on with Mike Zanino. I don't need to go look any further. I mean, Zanino, like you said, is 5% higher on this list than the than everybody else in terms of barrel rate. And the next guys on the list, 5% behind him, are Tatis, Otani, Acuna, Judge, Harper, Stanton, I mean, those guys we know hit the ball hard, and Zanino is, you know, practically lapping them in terms of in terms of uh, barrel rate. So, if we're trying to figure out why Mike Zanino has 19 home runs and 187 at bats, question answer. Maybe a quick explanation of how barrel rate works. It's a calculated metric based on exit velocity of a batted ball and launch angle and the theory is quite simple the harder you hit it the wider the envelope of launch angle that gets included in barrel rate because the harder you hit it the farther it goes basically and Stephen points out that Zanino's launch angle of 27.2 degrees over the period is also the highest in the league yeah so he's basically hitting everything in the air if you look at what that means in terms of fly ball of batted ball distribution i mean it's about a i'm doing the math quickly in my head across the two years here but it's about 56 percent of his fly of his balls in play are fly balls and you know the ones that he makes the best contact on are the ones that are, are that he's barreling up are the ones that are going over the fence the other ones like we've said so many times earlier are just going for fly ball outs but in terms of optimizing his swing you know that's pretty good uh, you know, if you, <laughs> when he's barreling the ball on contact nearly a quarter of the time and leading the league in that, that's great. Of course, the flip side of the coin is he's still hitting under 200 because he strikes out almost half the time. So it's actually like I have trouble squaring that up in my head, PD, because he either 
when he puts the bat on the ball, he squares it up at an incredibly, incredibly high rate, but he completely swings and misses a huge percentage of the time. It's like, you know, in between there, there should be a lot of bad contact and he's got none of it. Right. It's a, it's a really an all or nothing situation. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I tried to invent a metric about just batted ball outcomes. And I said, if you just sum up the good outcomes and subtract the bad outcomes, you're going to have an idea of how well a player performs. And I think it was a a pretty useful thing. It was just really labor intensive and I kind of stopped using it. But I think Mike Zanino is an interesting case in this example because it seems like he would just about zero out or or be negative. Most batters are negative because obviously there's more negative outcomes than positive. But it's pretty interesting that he makes so much hard contact and hard contact was one of the positive things that I included on the batter's positive side of the ledger that somewhere in there there's a really good ball player, a really good effective fantasy baseball hitter but so far he's managed to keep it hidden just behind the blur of bat- of swings and misses. Yeah, and he's been, you know, he's been doing some variation of this for a long time now. You know, he's 30 years old and is not exactly just bursting on the scene here. This has been his profile forever. And it may but it makes me want to look more at his um at his splits against especially uh you know against different types of pitches because you know one it occurs to me the one possible explanation for this is that he is the you know, the real life Pedro Serrano from major league who, you know, pounds fastballs and, you know, it's cur- it's fastballs very much and hits curveballs Not at all, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but that's just a, you know, I, I haven't actually gotten to look at that. And you would think that, uh, you know, that kind of thing would get exploited in this, uh, in this day of video, uh, of video scouring and all that. But it's, uh, it, it is something that makes me want to know more about what's going a so very right and b so very wrong almost at the same time. So does any of this analysis, Ray, make you more interested in the second half for Sano, for Soler, for Zanino? It's all contact. We're getting to the point in the season where it's all contact specific, right? Right. Um, there, there are scenarios where I've actually seen that despite the 19 home runs, Zanino is a free agent in some of my mixed leagues because the batting average and the OBP are such a penalty. But there may be cases where you're doing well in OBP or – you need to take a roll of the dice and chase that power, and Zanino would help you, especially compared to you might have other catchers who you're taking that same batting average on-base percentage penalty and not getting the power from them. So, you know, of the group, because of the position and because of the maybe with the right team context, I might think about it with Zanino. Uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about Solaire or Sano at this point. Of course, Stephen Nickrand is also the starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, and he kind of did a similar thing with his recent column about 12-month leaders, but in base performance value. And again, uh, just quickly explain, base performance value is a combination of a bunch of metrics that Baseball HQ uses to kind of summarize the skill sets of pitchers keeping in mind that a similar BPV could be made up of different proportions of the kind of skills that we're looking at. But he had some notable names from the American League, starting with uh, up in your neck of the woods, Eduardo Rodriguez, who could use uh, some support at 552 ERA. Yeah, he's gotten knocked around quite a bit in the first half, and not necessarily all of his own doing, as Stephen's trying to point out here. The uh, you know his skills have actually been quite good. He's got, I mean, just off the cuff with the wrong number, raw numbers, 21 walks, 104 strikeouts, so a five to one strikeout to walk ratio in 90 innings. So he's also striking out more than a batter an inning that should play. And to boil that down to 
specific numbers. He's got the 552 expected ERA against the 368 expected ERA. So he's getting bad luck to the tune of almost two runs a game, uh, two runs per nine, which is which is pretty brutal. Uh, so, and, and it's not that he's given up. A, you know, there was one uh, somebody tweeted this out from one of his last starts of the first half. It's not that he's given up a ton of hard contact either. It's been a case where somebody tweeted out a uh, you know a log of all the hits he allowed in a game, and it was like 70-mile-an-hour ground ball, 72-mile-an-hour ground ball, 80-mile-an-hour fly, fly ball. And he just, you know, it was just a, a, a data representation that he just got dinged and, dunked, dinged and dunked to death. And, you know, the other aspect of this that plays into it a little bit is the Red Sox defense. As good as the Red Sox have been as a team this year, the defense has been pretty bad. So uh, he might be a victim of that. But, uh, you know, there's no, as, as we were saying in the midseason pod with Todd the other day, there's no timer on regression. It could happen at any time or not at all. But uh, Rodriguez looks like a pretty good percentage play to have a better second half than first half. And just to put into context, Rodriguez's base performance value, this combined metric of skills, is 152, which puts him a couple of points behind Kevin Gausman, who's been everybody's... Uh, um, most amazing story of the year because he's getting good results. It's tied with Trevor Bauer. He's got uh, issues of his own, but he's in a he's in a cluster of base performance value guys who are all pretty good. Some of them lucky, some of them unlucky, but I think they're all worth looking at, especially if a disgruntled owners thinking, "I've had enough of this Eduardo Rodriguez. I got to pitch him for something a little better in trade." I think you could be pleasantly surprised. Uh, another guy on the list who has been more effective in the actual stats is Shane McClanahan, the left-hander in Tampa. Yeah, he's been a uh, a revelation. The Rays are, you know, are so good at using putting pitchers in a position to succeed. And I had to write up McClanahan for, uh, I think it was a day when I was writing the daily matchups column recently where we break down all the starts for a particular day and McClanahan was pitching. So I ended up taking a deep dive on him one day last week. And you know, his base performance value for the year is 133, which is well above average. You know, it's been holding up well. It's 127 for the last 31 days. Really, the only knock you could give on McClanahan is that he doesn't pitch deep into games. You know, he's only uh, only got a couple of starts. You know, I think less than half the starts he's made it into the, into or beyond the fifth inning. And his pitch counts tend to average out in the 70s or 80s. So, you know, there's almost no chance for a win there. But the thing you want to watch here as the Rays are always moving their parts around is this, you know, three, four innings at a pop. The, the value proposition of this changes entirely if they throw an opener in front of him. And if they, if his four innings end up going from the first through the fourth or at, get pushed out to the second through the fifth or the third through the sixth, now he's Ryan Yarborough and the winds will just start popping all over the place. I don't have any indication that that's going to happen, but, you know, that, like I said, nothing's everything's fluid in it with, with the Rays with their pitching staff. So, if that happens, then you want to run and get McClanahan as fast as you can because his value could be very, very different from the second half. And as you said earlier, sometimes the use of lists like this is to say, hmm, and go look into it further. And when I did, I went to uh, Baseball Savant and looked at some of the StatCast metrics, and this guy's off the charts, dark red, which is really good in a lot of the indicators having to do with fastball speed, whiff rates, chase rates, and so forth. 
but somehow he manages to give up an awful lot of hard contact. His max exit velocity is like in the third percentile, which means he's down near the bottom of the barrel. Hard hit is like light blue. Average exit velocity is light blue. Barrel rates are light blue. So he is giving up a lot of hard contact, despite the appearance of having some pretty useful stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. That might be the explanation for why the Rays are using them the way they are, because if you look at the pitch counts and then translate those over to batters faced, they're pretty consistently trying to hold him the two times through the order. You know, you see a lot of 17, 18, 19, 20 batters faced in an outing, and the Rays clearly seem to think that he gets exposed the more people see him, and they're trying to trying to limit that. So that might be that uh, an indication that they think that for whatever reason he's he gets squared up, and it's one of those things where the more the batters see him, the better the results are. So they're uh, they're trying to mask him a little bit. Something else I'm going to go back and look at is how it, whether he has the three pitches or four pitches. Exactly. You know, I was wondering the same. Of course, talking on the show today with Tanner Smith, and we've been talking about pitch mix, and so that makes me wonder about McClanahan's pitch mix, whether he has enough pitches to get through that third time or especially the fourth time to improve the uh, the overall results and apply the stuff profitably. Another name on Stephen's list, Patrick Sandoval, the left-hander in Los Angeles, has done really well over the last year, especially with swinging strikes. Yeah, he's uh, the 11th highest swing strike rate in the American League over the last 12 years. 12, 12 years. That would be quite something. <laughs> that would be. Uh, the 12 months. <laughs> um, in fact, um, among the st- starting pitchers who have a 13 or higher swing strike rate during that period, only three of those 13 have a heavy ground ball tilt, throw 50% ground ball rates or more, and Sandoval's one of those. So he gets a lot of swings and misses, and when they hit him, they tend to hit him on the ground. That's a that's a foundation for success. Um, I'm a little bitter about this one because uh, when Sandoval wasn't in, in a rotation or getting much work at the beginning of the year, I actually uh, made a mistake and dropped him in a dynasty league before he got back into the rotation, and I am... I am greatly re- re- resenting my, uh, regretting that and uh, re- re- resenting Sandoval's success as a result because I knew better than that, and he's proving me wrong. Kind of an inverse of what we were talking about with Shane McClanahan in that uh, Sandoval's stuff numbers are not that great. A great whiff rate, which is we've already talked about, and a pretty good chase rate, but you know, strikeouts are just so-so. Uh, but he does control the hard contact really, really good in that department. Yeah, and it's interesting. Tanner, um, one of the metrics he's used in his articles that I really like is he has a, um, I forget what he calls it, it's like a lattice, I think, of what pitches he throws and what counts. So you can see, you know, that he, you know, he tends to, when he's 0-1, he throws the slider more. When he's behind in the count, he throws this pitch more, and he can break that down to lefties and righties. And it strikes me that Sandoval must have some strength in that. And then when he gets ahead of pitchers, he's got, you know, the swing and miss he can go to for the strikeout. But when he's you know even or behind in the count, he's got you know he can go to the other side of his repertoire and you know induce those ground balls and get himself out of trouble. And you know those those are very complementary skills. And you know a pitcher who can you know who can both put pitchers put batters away when he gets ahead and and find a way to induce weak contact when he's behind is a pitcher who's going to have a lot of success. And finally, Ray, 
in facts and flukes at baseballhq.com. It's a regular bi-weekly, tri-weekly feature where some of our analysts pick out five players from one of the two leagues and they do a little bit of a deep dive on those players trying to assess, we call it performance validation, looking at performance and saying, is this guy a fact or a fluke for the performance level that he's applied? And uh, this week... Uh, Greg Pyron looked at five guys in the American League, including a couple of Oakland A's. Interesting analysis of Sean Murphy, the catcher. Yeah, Sean Murphy is very interesting. Uh, He popped up on, I've been looking at him for a couple of weeks now. He popped up a couple of times in Ryan Bloomfield's recent speculators. He was like on an all second half team and also uh, made us a couple of statistical filters. And then it's great here because Greg kind of follows up with a deeper analysis and comes to a slightly different conclusion you know, Murphy for context is hitting 217 with, you know, 10 home runs this year. So uh, Greg's trying to go under the hood a little bit and look for, you know, a trend arrow for the second half. And he kind of came to the conclusion of expect more of the same. Uh, and the reasons for that were that Murphy's contact rate is tolerable and maybe he's been a little bit unlucky on Babbitt. But because of that ground ball, line drive, fly ball distribution that we were talking about, that he doesn't hit many ball, hit many line drives. The batting average probably isn't that unfair to him. He's a, you know, his expected batting average is in, in the two thirties compared to that two seventeen actual batting average. So that's not really enough of a gap to get excited about. Um, and he's chasing a little bit more uh, out of the strike zone, which also is going to le- keep his strikeout rate in a you know barely tolerable range. He strikes out about thirty percent of the time right now, which again doesn't support a great batting average. All that said, though, the power is real. The power has been real pretty much since he came up from the minors. Our metrics like expected power index, barrel rate, et cetera, are all upper echelon. And he also hits a lot of fly balls, which on the one hand are one reason the batting average is staying low, but the fly balls are great for continued home run output. So, you know, long story short that, you know, long term, I think we like Murphy more in dynasty leagues. You know, he's still young and you know, getting established in the majors and maybe an upper echelon catcher. But, you know, for the second half of this year, you know, more, more of the same seems like the output outlook. You could probably expect another eight to 10 home runs and a batting average that continues to hover, you know, in the, in the 220, 230 range. We've written before at Baseball HQ about the catcher penalty on offense that young catchers sometimes take a little while to get their offense to catch up with their rest of their game because they have to focus so much on framing and pitch calling and game management and and base running control, all of these kind of defensive responsibilities that maybe weigh a little bit on the player's ability to be patient at the plate and all of those kinds of things. Would you expect the improvement on offense for a catcher like Sean Murphy, assuming that that general paradigm holds, would benefit his power or his batting average or both or neither? How does that work? I think it goes right back to what we were talking about with the batting eye metric, right? Is I think you would expect the, you know, especially for a catcher who spends so much time looking at the strike zone and pitch mixes and stuff, right? You would expect him to become a little bit more, you know, intelligent or thinking ahead as, you know, as a hitter, the kind of the same way he's doing behind the plate. And then maybe the plate, the strike zone plate discipline metrics would come first. And as a, you know, once those improve a little bit and then he starts, identifying what the pitches are that he can really drive, that the power would be a little bit of a trailing metric behind that. Like you say, for a catcher, that might take, that tends to take a little bit longer because they're so distracted with their defensive responsibilities. The other thing, when you talk about catcher penalty that we need to think about too, is that 
you know, you think this is probably a little less true for a strapping 22 year old, but in general, they do tend to wear down a little bit as the season goes on. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's probably the wrong time of year to expect Murphy to suddenly be, you know, unlocking new skills because he's probably just barely hanging on as it is. And the physical burden actually manifests every year because catchers generally don't get as many plate appearances as other position players because they get a couple of days off a week just by design. And the club does that, except for Salvador Perez, I guess, might be the exception that tests that rule. But generally speaking, as long as a team has a playable second catcher he'll sometimes it'll be the personal catcher for one of the pitchers on the staff or something like that so there's kind of guaranteed days off in there that aren't necessarily the case for other position players and also on the Oakland A's a player that made Greg Pyron's list of interesting players Elvis Andrus yeah this this is a very interesting case because Andrus I mean for the first couple of months of the season was absolutely brutal getting to Oakland you remember they made that um you know take my almost take my trash for your trash trade with Texas and yeah. Andrews to Oakland. When they sent Chris Davis back to Texas, it was like, I don't want this guy. You don't want this guy. How about, you know, how about we swap? And from Oakland's perspective, you can see why they did it because they had absolutely nobody to play shortstop and they, they could at least plug Andrews in there when they couldn't plug Davis in there. Um, but, you know, Andrews came out and hit a buck 50 in April and, you know, up that to two fifty in May, but with a bad OBP and no power at all, it, and then even through June, you know, the batting average was going up a little bit, but still no power. But, you know, Greg looked here and saw a little bit of reason for optimism. And sure enough, in July, you know, short, small sample, we played 10 days or so before the All-Star break. But Andrews looked a little bit better. His contact is down a few ticks, uh, but that was mostly due to that slow start in April. But, you know, he still makes contact at an uh, over 80% rate, which is a good number for this day and age. Uh, the quality of the contact, you know, he's not hitting the ball that hard. Our hard contact metric, our expected power are both down for the year. But again, we're up significantly in June. He seems like he's gotten better with the warm weather or better every month. And he finally unlocked a couple of home runs in July. So, uh, you know, there, there's some hope there. And, you know, the one thing Andrews always used to be able to do was run, you know, a bunch of 25, 30 stolen base seasons in the, uh, in the middle part of the decade there, 31 as recently as 2019. He had eight in the first half, and of course, you can't steal steal second unless you get on first. And he's getting on first more often, so wouldn't be out of the wouldn't wouldn't be out of the realm to see another eight to ten stolen bases down the stretch here either. He's had some decent power years. I remember back in twenty seventeen, I think I had him on a roster, and he hit twenty, and. His home run for fly ball rate is very low. Now, some of that is probably park-related. That's a tough, big park to hit home runs in. But he's only at 3% home run per fly ball. And I know you mentioned that the uh, the hard contact is not up to snuff, but hard contact is sometimes, I think, in our metric, is measured by outcomes rather than by statcast-type metrics. And I haven't had a chance to look at Elvis Andrews, but 3% home run per fly ball rate almost for any major league hitter seems uh, a little low and maybe some room for improvement in that regard. Yeah, I think that's right. And to be clear, you know, in terms of counting raw home runs, we're not, we're not going to expect much here. He only has a 33% fly ball rate. So even if even with an improvement in home run per fly ball, the denominator there is going to stay low. But you're right. In this day and age, 3% is ridiculously low, even for the ballpark change from Arlington to Oakland. He could double that number to 6 or 7%, which would probably be more like his career average. But that would probably get him, what, five to seven home runs in the second half rather than two, which, you know, now if we start talking about a guy who makes decent contact and hits at least 250, 260 with 
five to seven home runs, eight to ten stolen bases. Hey, that's something I'd like to roster for the first for the second half, assuming he might even be a free agent in your league right now. Of course, a lot depends on who you're playing at shortstop. If you've got Fernando Tatis, you don't probably need to look in at uh, Elvis Andrews. But if you're, you know, scuffling around with uh, some of the lesser lights, like Joe Panic is on one of my teams, for instance. Yeah, take a look. Panic. <laughs> Panic stations. All right, Ray, thanks very much. Uh, I do appreciate it. And we'll have a, a more full news week, I think, coming up with the trade deadline and all of that kind of stuff going on. So I'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Sounds great. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report analyst at BaseballHQ.com. He's coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Tanner, welcome back. Happy to be back. Of course, one of the big stories as far as pitching is concerned before the break was the crackdown on the sticky stuff that pitchers were using to boost their spin rates. How do you think this is playing out so far as it relates to pitch mix? Um, I think we're seeing some guys that really struggle. Um, We're seeing like... You know, before this last great start by Garrett Cole, he was really struggling. Um, Garrett Richards was another one who was struggling. And then some guys are making adjustments. Um, They see, you know, I might not have the stuff I had to pitch in a certain way before. So now I have to pitch in a slightly different way. Um, And some guys, you know, tried stuff that's worked. And some guys have been less successful with it. But I think partially a key is a uh, knowledge that, you know, what I was doing before isn't working and an um, impetus to adjust. And then, you know, obviously the second part of that is that the adjustment's actually successful. But I think we're seeing a lot of that type of stuff going on right now. Pitchers trying to, having to try to figure it out on the fly. In an article that came out after the baseball made its announcement about cracking down, you looked at Marcus Stroman of the Mets in your Arsenal report column, and you noted that his slider, which he had been throwing about a quarter of the time, had lost about 140 RPMs of spin rate after the crackdown, and that the weighted on-base average allowed on the pitch had jumped by more than 100 points. So it seemed like there was a fairly obvious connection there. How common do you think is that sort of outcome across pitching in general? So the reason why I chose Stroman is because it is more of an extreme example. Um, You know, it was something that was, I think there's a lot of potential noise in some stuff. You know, if you look at a guy whose spin rate dropped by 80 RPMs in a start, then, you know, that's less than a standard deviation and likely isn't meaningful. And we see those type of falls and jumps throughout the season, but we have seen some extreme jumps like Stroman. Um, so I think there, you know, there's I think at least a dozen guys that are like that. Um, but I don't think it's the most common. 
In the Stroman analysis, you also noted that it was obviously bad news for Stroman if his slider continues to be at diminished movement and effectiveness. But, and I'm quoting you here, there's a good sign for his potential for the rest of the season. What's the good sign as far as Stroman is concerned? Yeah, so I was looking at Stroman and, you know, looking at what he's been doing, um, you know, in the starts to try to adjust. And one thing I saw was that he was throwing his split changeup a lot more. Um, about 5% more than he had during the rest of the season. And his slider, 5% less, about. Um, and throughout the season, the split changeup's actually been the better pitch for him than the slider. So, it, you know, it's one of those things you substitute a better pitch for a worse pitch. And now that worse pitch is a little bit worse than it was before, you know, back when he had the more horizontal movement on it. If he's working more with his um, split changeup as his primary off-speed pitch now, that could actually help starve off some of the regression that might have been coming for him ERA-wise. And, of course, when you talk about uh, split change-up or splange-up, as we might create a new word for it, um, but pitches like that and uh, even sinkers, they don't have as much spin. Like, spin is actually detrimental to the performance of the pitch in general terms. And in the same article, you noticed that over you talked about overall spin rates and the the uh, impression I got from the article was that looking at overall average spin rates might be a bit misleading, especially where for pitchers who have that kind of arsenal, whether sinkers, change-ups, those kind of things, because a higher spin rate uh, for them is actually a bad thing, and a lower spin rate, which you might look at and go, oh, that guy's spin rate is too low, is actually being very helpful to them, and you need to understand the mix and the average before you make any decisions about how those two things are working. Yeah, the parallel that comes to me now that I kind of wish I had mentioned in the article because I like it um, is be- that if it's like looking at average pitch velocity for a pitcher um, and, you know, saying over time his average pitch velocity has gone up or down, not classifying by pitch. Well, maybe he's throwing more slow curveballs and less fastballs, and that's why his overall pitch velocity is down. Um, it's very similar with spin. You know, if you're throwing more pitches that have higher spin rates inherently and less pitches that have less um, spin inherently then your spin rate average spin rate overall is going to go up and vice versa so that metric can be very misleading and actually when i've you know i've read a lot of stuff recently about like you know the pitchers that are struggling whatever when someone starts talking about overall spin rate for a pitcher i start to tune it out a little bit because i'm like okay maybe this guy hasn't done or this person hasn't done as much research as they need to, to really get the issue um, that they're talking about. I've actually heard the same thing about average velocity. I've heard it about average exit velocity for hitters. There's a lot of different situations where you need to understand the shape of the curve before you're going to make any conclusions based on where the median of it is. And uh, I don't think people do that all the time. It's because it's easier to just write down his spin rate went up and everybody goes, Ooh, now I'm interested. And then you, as you said, you find out the reason it went up is because he started uh, throwing fewer of the pitches that actually work that are low spin uh, type of things. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing. In that same column, you looked at Rich Hill who should really be adversely affected by spin rate reductions. You said, because his arsenal depends on spin. It's based on a low velocity, but high spin fastball and a super high spin curveball that together added up to 85% of the pitches he's thrown this year. But you said Hill made an adjustment with the curve that pretty much offset the decline in its spin rate. What adjustment did Rich Hill make on his curveball to keep it a, a successful pitch? 
Yeah, so with Hill, the results got a little bit worse on his curveball, but not quite as much as you would expect for the like the spin decrease you saw. And I think it's because Hill is so adaptable with his curveball. He can throw it from so many different arm angles, so many different speeds, locate it different ways. You know, everyone says like Rich Hill's a two pitch pitcher, and for the most part, he is. But that second pitch, the curveball is really like five different pitches. So. It's something where he doesn't have to have that super high spin hammer necessarily um, to be successful because he has all these other tricks in his arsenal um, that, you know, hitters are not used to and that are deceptive. He appears to have been unable to figure out a similar fix for his high-spin four-seamer. And, of course, you want high spin on a four-seamer if you're pitching it up in the zone because it rides and doesn't drop as much as the batter expects it to because of gravity and that kind of thing. His fastball lost spin to a similar order of magnitude with the spin rate decline on the curveball that we just talked about, but the effect on the fastball was way, way worse. Uh, what's the issue with the four-seamer? Yeah, so I talked about how Hill's adaptable with the curveball. You know, Crafty can do so many different things with it. The It couldn't be any starkly different with the fastball. Like, I show a um, heat map in the article where really it's just that upper middle part of the zone is where he throws almost all his fastballs. So he really had one trick of his fastball, you know, that he tunneled his curveball off of. And that was the whole package was, you know, throw that high fastball middle high part of the plate and then do all this different stuff with his curveball. Well, when that, you know, pitch with his fastball gets a little bit less stuff on it, then it leads to a giant um, impact on his results because, you know, unlike his curveball, he doesn't really have anywhere else to go. Um, you know, that, that pitch is less effective. He doesn't, he's 41 years old with an 88 mile per hour fastball. Like, you know, there's only at this point so much that he can do with that. Um, and he has to kind of just keep working that way because his fastball doesn't work down. And he's shown that over time. And really that was what helped that revelation along, you know, with varying the curveball was what helped him rise to this level of success as a late bloomer is, you know, realizing okay, this is how my fastball works, and that's where I should throw it. So, Yeah, it's where he has to throw it, because if it's anywhere close to where it can be hit in a sweet spot, it's going to get hit, because it's just not overpowering enough and it doesn't move enough. Uh, exactly. One of, one of our super smart readers asked in the comments section of this article how pitch spin in just a couple of post-crackdown starts. Uh, Stroman and Hill had both started just a couple of games, and this guy said, how can that be statistically significant? And you had a good answer. It is statistically significant because? Yeah, if you're looking at statistical significance, you're looking at two different factors. You're looking at how far is that outcome outside of the um, average? Um, is it like more than one standard deviation or in if you're really looking at two standard deviations outside and then the sample size? Um, if you see an outcome like um, that is one standard deviation outside of the mean, then you have a good idea with at least like 95 percent confidence is the rule of thumb that that outcome wasn't due to chance um, and that it might be a new mean in play. So you might have a new skill level now. Um, so that was what I meant by statistical significance was like how far that um, outcome was away from the mean and was it at least one standard deviation away. 
And let's keep in mind that I was a journalism major, and for me, a standard <laughs> deviation was wearing a striped shirt with checked pants uh, <laughs> rather than anything mathematical. I've since figured it out a little bit more. But in general, given the uncertainties caused by the sticky stuff ban, it seems like we would be well served to understand not just which pitchers are affected, but which types of pitchers and in what ways. What sort of general guidance can you give to listeners about how they can manage their pitching for the rest of this season, especially when they're considering pitching? pitchers to add, drop, or get involved in trades? Yeah, so absolutely. So one of the things I would be looking at is, what is this pitcher's general plan of attack? Is he working with high fastballs and um, curveballs working off of that? Is he working with a sinker slider changeup mix? If he's a sinker slider changeup guy, generally he's going to be a little bit less effective than a guy who's working for high fastballs and curveballs. But then you also got to if you have a high fastball curveball guy, then you guys see it has the spin rate actually been dropping. And is it um, out? Is it more than like 115 RPMs is the rule over like a couple of starts um, that that would be a good rule of thumb to work off of. Um, so if you have a guy, you know, whose result and then you've got to look at the results, too, because maybe he's adjusted in some way. Um, to having lesser stuff, maybe like Stroman, you know, he's throwing his, uh, he has a changeup that's good and he's throwing that more and that's helped offset a little bit of the re results um, drop that would happen if he kept throwing the exact same way that he was. So generally, I think it's one of those things where you have to really look at each individual pitcher um, when you're doing this type of stuff. You can't generalize too much. You can have like a category of a guy who, high fastball curveball who might be more effective, but then you have to look at the evidence and see what it's actually telling you and make sure it's over at least a couple starts. I did notice that uh, over the years, when I started at BaseballHQ.com, the mantra was pretty much ignore the results. There are underlying skills that are leading to the results and we can create expected results and check the variance between expected and actual. And I think maybe sometimes we've drifted a little too far from that from that paradigm where we should be willing to look at results, you know, and say, this guy's ERA is, is five and that's not a good ERA. And I need to figure out why that is. And then I, I'm going to start looking at the skills, but if I can't figure it out, I'm going to be very worried that five is what it is because I can't figure out why it's going to move in any particular direction. And I think sometimes we overstate how certain we are, especially in a half season, relatively short sample that, this guy's X ERA is four and his actual ERA is 5.5. Therefore, you can expect a huge decline over the next nine starts. I don't think that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something that I'm probably not the one who came up with this term, but it's something that I use kind of frequently called Michael Pineda syndrome, where, you know, Michael Pineda had these great strikeout rates and these low walk rates, but yeah, his ERA was high almost every year. And people weren't figuring out why is this happening. And every year they said, okay, his ERA is going to get a run better because he was unlucky. Well, it turns out with what we know now that he wasn't getting that unlucky. He was just throwing a lot of pitches in the middle of the plate that were getting hammered. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's something you could see if you were watching him, but if you were only looking at what we had in terms of statistical analysis at that time, you would be missing something. So, you know, it's every every year and every week we're getting something new in terms of analysis, but you know, at, at some point it does have to translate to results. So, you know, you have to balance that a little bit. If a guy has a long track record of getting no results, unless you see a big change, 
maybe don't necessarily expect that his ERA is going to adjust to his XERA or his FIP or something like that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Tanner Smith from BaseballHQ.com. He writes the Arsenal Report at the site. And Tanner, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some slumps and pumps and dumps and jumps. Uh, let's start with a slump. This is a player who might be struggling right at the moment, but probably worth hanging on to. So I'll go outside of the pitching niche here and go with um, Anthony Rendon because, you know, he's dealt with some lower body issues, some health issues this year, and he's had a little bit of rough results. But that guy has been so good. People forget how good he's been. He's been like a top 10 hitter in baseball, not maybe not necessarily by fantasy, but by like, you know, real life hitting. He's been like a 140 Wade runs create plus guy and at some point you know you would think in the second half that he's gonna start hitting again just because he always has the plate discipline isn't bad you know he's hitting the ball a little bit less hard but you know if the plate discipline is still there then maybe he just needs to get healthy to start crushing the ball again well from your lips to god's ears he's killing one of my teams and uh, i have to keep him in the roster because you know there's not not anybody out there on the free agent wire that's going to be a more likely candidate to do well than Anthony Rendon. So fingers crossed. How about a pump? This is a player who's overachieving and you think you could pump him up and sell him on the trade market. Yeah. um, I would think Taiwan Walker. Um, I've really liked a lot of what Walker has done this year. Um, And I think that there have, you know, he's pitched really well for the Mets. His ERA has been in the twos, but I don't think he's a twos ERA guy. If you look, he has a long history of that. He hasn't shown a big enough adjustment, in my opinion, to be a guy that you would expect to be an ace or a number two for your staff going forward. So if you get a fancy owner, opposing fancy owner, thinks he's that guy, you could get good value. When you say he hasn't shown you enough, what would you exp- what would you be looking for to convince you that this was more real than than you apparently think it is? If he had like you know a big adjustment in how he's approaching, or you know his fastball jumped and velocity or rpms or suddenly he has a new slider that's a nasty pitch that he didn't have before um you know i would be looking at all that kind of stuff i just haven't seen it yet. he looks very similar stuff wise he's maybe executing a little bit better than he had before but how about a dump an underachiever that is definitely underachieving and worth replacing um patrick corbin would be the guy for that for me you know i've looked at him a couple of times this year and you know, everything except for the sliders getting crushed and the slider has gone from a, you know, weapon of death to a, just a good, very good pitch. Um, and even the, the slider I've looked and it just is, doesn't look as firm. Velocity wise, it's been fine. It's been getting back to where it was, but like the sharpness of the bite just doesn't seem to be there for him. And, you know, the rest of the rep- repertoire just isn't very good. So I just wouldn't expect good results. We've seen, you know, half season last year wasn't good. Half season this year hasn't been good. I don't see any reason why he's going to bounce back. And finally, how about a jump? This is a player who, if you saw him in your free agent pool, you'd jump. Um, I would go with Ranger Suarez for that, actually. Um, I think, you know, everyone knows how bad the Phillies bullpen's been. It's been tragic. Um, They had like eight blown saves in nine games at one point. Um, but, you know, Rangers come in and he's just executed. He has plus command, at least, maybe double plus. He just locate 94, 95, which is bumped from where he was. And I think he could have 
secure the closers role for the Phillies because they've really been looking for anyone with any level of confidence with that. And he's done, he even had like a seven out save against Boston um, before the last game before the break. I think that Girardi isn't going to take him out of that role um, because he's shown that he can do it. And Girardi hasn't been able to find anyone else who can consistently get outs. So you could get, you know, some saves with good ERA, good whip. Um, he's not going to light up the board in terms of strikeouts, but, you know, he's not going to walk a lot of guys to inflate your whip either. Well, again, from your lips to God's ear, I picked him up in TGFBI not long ago. Fingers crossed that you're right about that. Uh, Tanner Smith's slump is uh, Anthony Rendon of the Angels, his pump, Taiwan Walker of the Mets, a dump, Patrick Corbin of Washington, and his jump is Ranger Suarez of Philadelphia. Tanner, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Tanner Smith. Yeah, so I'm at the Arsenal Report. Um, I publish that every other week. Um, I do call-ups for Baseball HQ. Um, I did a um, Eyes Have It article for Baseball HQ recently. And on Twitter, I'm at TannerBall26. Um, and I'll, I post occasionally um, baseball stuff on there, you know, some silly stuff, but mostly baseball stuff on there. So that's And I also post all my articles on there, so you'll know um, when my articles come out, if you follow me on there. Why 26? Chase Utley's number. That was, that was my guy growing up. <laughs> this has been terrific, Tanner. I want to thank you very much for joining us. I hope we get to talk to you again. Uh, I hope you plan to go to first pitch in the fall. And uh, if you do, we can, uh, have a beer together and talk about baseball. Absolutely. That sounds good. Tanner Smith writes the Arsenal Report and other content at BaseballHQ.com. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings are all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, just this week, analyst Matt Dodge looks at the five teams in the American League Central, including the burdens on rotations in Chicago and Cleveland and some hot bats in the Detroit organization. And Jock Thompson looks at the American League West, including a rising star catcher in Seattle and a recovering catcher in Texas. In the Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield dishes out some future game mulligans to prospects who might have disappointed in the big showcase like Bo Naylor and Marco Luciano. And in the Arsenal report, Tanner and I didn't touch on it, but this week he looks at a couple of starters who've been widely mentioned as trade bait in the majors, Kyle Gibson of Texas and Drew Smiley of Atlanta. And those are just four articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and My Extra Innings comment are coming right up. 
and leading off it's the minor league minute. And here with a look at Cubs outfield prospect Brennan Davis is Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With the trade of Jock Peterson to the Atlanta Braves, the Chicago Cubs have started what will likely be a roster-wide fire sale as the aging club is in desperate need of cheaper and more productive players. Coming into 2021, the Cubs' farm system ranked in the bottom five in terms of overall talent, and that was before Adbert Alzelay exhausted his rookie eligibility. One bright spot in an otherwise talent-depleted system is outfielder and Futures game MVP Brennan Davis. Prior to blasting two home runs in the Futures game, Davis was far from a household name, though he did check in at number 51 in our annual HQ100. The 22-year-old Davis has a lean, projectable body, and he should continue to add power as he matures and fills out his 6'4", 200-pound frame, though as a quick-twitch athlete, he's far more likely to end up as a Byron Buxton type instead of a true masher. At the plate, Davis has plus bat speed, an all-fields right-handed stroke, and a good understanding of the strike zone. In 375 professional at-bats, Davis is slashing 296 with a 393 on base percentage and a 484 slugging percentage with 24 doubles, 14 home runs, 15 stolen bases, and 48 walks. Defensively, Davis has plus speed and a plus arm, though he does need to refine his route running and first step quickness. He's already made impressive strides on both sides of the ball and should be able to stick in center field for the foreseeable future. Davis has more than held his own since being moved up to AA Tennessee, and his coming out party at the Futures game and the Cubs fire sale will only accelerate his timeline to the majors. Fantasy managers looking for a projectable five-tool talent should definitely keep an eye on the Cubs' Brendan Davis, and he should be in Wrigley by mid to late 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, also this week at BaseballHQ.com, in a column titled First Year Player Draft Potential Rating Buckets 2021, scouting analyst Chris Blessing reviews the recent 2021 draft, and he puts all the draftees into potential rating buckets. A 9C for Jack Leiter, if you want to get an idea of what's going on there. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time in production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Minnesota outfielder Brent Rooker is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Power is the name of Brent Rooker's game, according to the April 4th, 2021 edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. Call-ups continued. He hit a high of 22 home runs in 2018 and has the punch to hit 25 to 30 home runs at his peak. Okay, so Ricker has the punch to hit 25 to 30 home runs at his peak, but what if his peak is right now? As it stands now, Ricker is currently tied for the AAA lead in home runs at 18 with none other than Los Angeles Angels mega prospect Joe Adele. Wow! Plus, Ricker hit the trifecta literally by detonating three home runs against the Columbus Clippers on Tuesday, July 13, 2021. However, please keep in mind that Ricker has averaged well above one strikeout per game at AAA St. Paul in 2021 and might whiff even more if called up. In fact, through 15 big league games for the Twins, 13 miles away, Rooker has already struck out 18 times, again averaging well over one strikeout per game. Yikes. That's why 26-year-old Minnesota Twins power-hitting outfielder Brent Rooker 
like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer and perhaps might be an extremely timely pickup if he is still available in your league. Here's why. Currently 15 games out of first as of July 16, 2021, the Twins are likely to be sellers at the July 30th trade deadline exactly two weeks away. Therefore, it's logical that 41-year-old Nelson Cruz, who, like Rooker, also has 18 home runs, but unlike Rooker, is currently batting 304 in his 2021 All-Star season, might request, and probably should request, a trade to a contender, thereby potentially opening Minnesota's DH slot to Rooker, an extra base hitting machine, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Worth noting, for illustration purposes only, Rooker's 946 OPS currently ranks 7th at AAA East, just behind 6th ranking Wander Franco at 954. However, Rooker's 246 batting average at AAA lags considerably behind Franco's 315 batting average at AAA, perhaps highlighting the difference in home run power. In other words, both players have similar OPS, but significantly different batting averages, showing perhaps the raw power needed by Rooker to make up the difference in the on-base plus slugging percentage race and perhaps further showing the raw power needed to win your league by adding 26-year-old Minnesota Twins extra base hitting machine. Brett Rooker is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about some trades I'd like to see. Of course, everybody's been talking about the trade market that's going to open up and really get rolling in the next couple of weeks, and I was thinking about it as well. Not exactly the most original thought, I grant you, but I've got a couple of trades that I'd like to see take place. The first one is a second baseman to Chicago. Losing Nick Madrigal for the season dealt the Sox a serious blow when they can and should have serious playoff aspirations. Leury Garcia and Danny Mendick have filled in better than we might have expected with a combined slash line of 261, 350, 409. That's a 759 OPS while playing second base, but batting almost always near the bottom of the order. Escobar might be the first choice. He's in the last year of his contract, the prototype of a rental and therefore probably a lower cost to acquire. His stat cast hitting metrics are mostly just middling, but he does have decent pop, with the slugging percentage usually in the mid to high 400s, 483 this season. And he runs well, doesn't have much stolen base potential, a career peak of five bags in a season. Most importantly, though, he's a plus-plus fielder at second base and third base, 95th percentile in outs above average. So the Sox could add a little punch to the sixth hole in their order and get some good defense as a bargain. I would rather have Frazier if I were the Sox, though. He's not the power-hitting run producer Escobar would be, and his defense is only 22nd percentile. But he gets enough extra base hits to sport a slugging percentage only about 20 points behind Escobar's, and more importantly, Frazier has an on-base percentage 100 points higher. So if he were hitting ahead of Moncada and Abreu and Anderson and some of the other punchers in that Sox order, why Frazier could produce even more runs at the top of the Chicago White Sox order than Escobar could in the low middle following those power guys. Frazier would also add 100 points of OPS to what they're getting from Garcia and Mendick and 50 points of on-base percentage over them and current leadoff hitter Tim Anderson. 
Frazier's expected batting average and whiff avoidance are 98th percentile, and his walk percentage is middle of the pack, enough to get him on base an extra 8 or 9% of his plate appearances. In effect, I think adding Frazier would add power to the lineup indirectly by letting the current Sox 1-4 hitters slide back to the 2-5 through five slots, batting Frazier leadoff, then moving Tim Anderson to second, Moncada to third, Jose Abreu to clean up where he started the year, and Vaughn or the suddenly sluggalicious Brian Goodwin fifth and the other guy sixth. You can see how this is a stronger lineup. Or the Sox could try some other options. They could leave Anderson atop the order and slot Frazier into the two-hole. I think that's a mismatch, though. Or they could leave the order as it is at the top and bat Frazier at the bottom in that second leadoff slot, but I think that would be a real waste. So, yes, Escobar would work, and rumor has it that the Sox have kicked the tires on a deal without much success so far. But I'm convinced Frazier would be the better route for the Sox to take, even though he's still ARB eligible. That creates an extra year before free agency, and that becomes a little higher price, especially when Madrigal's return next year would create a traffic jam at second base. But I don't think the White Sox can afford to wait around. Playing to win means playing for now. The other trade I'd like to see is Minnesota-designated hitter Nelson Cruz to Oakland. The penny-pinching A's are at it again, taking their patched-together lineup and their low-rent roster to the second wildcard slot so far. They're within three and a half games of the division-leading Astros and within three games of the first wildcard spot currently held by the Rays. And they've done it all while getting this from their designated hitters. A slash line of 228, 293, 397. Just for record, Nelson Cruz, 304, 381, 549. That's a 690 OPS for the DHs in Oakland so far, a 930 OPS for Nelson Cruz. That's 240 points of OPS gained. The DHs so far have a 25% K rate. Cruz is at 18. They have an 8% walk rate. Cruz is up around 11. And they have 13 home runs to Cruz's 18. Now, it's important that Cruz is also a free agent at the end of this season, so the Twins can't demand too much in return for what is basically a 70 or so game rental. Oakland is middle of the pack in runs scored, and adding Nelson Cruz to hit in the middle of that order I think would really help them close a gap that they'll need to close if they want to make the playoffs, but more importantly, if they want to advance towards a pennant and a championship. They've got to score more runs, and this looks like a cheap way to go about it. Now, before I go, a quick word about Craig Kimbrell, the Chicago closer. Kimbrell has an 057 ERA this year, an 067 whip, and 20 saves with two blown. He has 54 strikeouts against 10 walks. He last allowed an earned run back in May, and since then has struck out more than half the batters he's faced. This, too, is the last year of his contract, so he could be a rental, although there is a team option for $22 million in 2022, so he could be looked at as a rental plus. I've heard Boston and the White Sox as the likeliest destinations, but I don't see that. The White Sox have Liam Hendricks at the end of their bullpen, and Boston has Adam Ottavino and Matt Barnes doing a reasonably good job. Adding Kimbrell is going to cost a lot in terms of prospects and maybe even active players. Both Boston and Chicago are above league average already in converting save opportunities and in preventing inherited runs from scoring. 
Yes, they'll be looking for some bullpen help because all the contenders are going to be looking for bullpen help. They always are. But I don't guess it's going to be the kind of help that Kimbrell will provide and cost. It'll be set up, guys, for incremental gains in pre-save situations. Now, you know which contenders are below league average in converting saves? How about Houston? And this surprised me, Milwaukee. And if you think Toronto has a shot at making a playoff run, more importantly, if Toronto thinks Toronto has a shot at making a playoff run, then the Blue Jays, too, could be in the market for a closer, as Jordan Romano has been a little bit inconsistent and prone to injury. Let the trading begin. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Tanner's a really interesting guy and he's doing really interesting work. And he's a good source of information about an area of fantasy baseball research that's only going to grow in importance. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davich, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go where you catch your pods, and if they'll allow it, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and that, in turn, helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday full edition featuring a guest expert interview with Derek Carty, the creator of The Bat and The Bat X projection systems, as well as all our usual great content. That's Derek Carty coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll see you next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.